Hey guys, Rich Lundgren, Hello Bass back here with another fresh podcast episode. This week we spend a good long time talking with Kent Middlestat, Kenny Mitt Fishing, all about finesse tactics, forward-facing sonar. There are tons of great tips and juicy tidbits that are going to help you catch more fish, both smallmouth and largemouth, all across the country. Uh, definitely listen to this one. It's going to help you catch more bass and suck less. It's only a kick. A jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Alright, so it says we are live. We're live. Wednesday night, live with uh, Kent Middlestat. So we'll uh, let some people get a chance to roll in here. Uh, I'm not sure how many people were knocking on the door to get in. Um, notification will go out now for people. Um, we'll see if there's uh, usually been a little lag on the viewers here. That's oh, great that all these notifications are coming out. All right, all right. So there's, there's at least one PB dad is here. Um, he's ready to learn about some finesse fishing. So for those that are rolling in, we have Kent Middlestad here. We're going to introduce him a little formally here in a second. But the main topic tonight is definitely finesse fishing. And I think a little bit on top of that, we'll talk about how uh, forward-facing sonar maybe intertwines with that finesse fishing uh, and some of the things that you've learned, maybe some of the different technologies and how it's worked and where you kind of see maybe like the benefits, where it's different, maybe where it's like really changing the game or you know, maybe where it's still maybe where it lacks even. So, um, so Kent, uh, middle state, he's from, uh, Minnesota. We've been fishing against each other for, oh, how long have you been in the Federation? And that's why yeah. we're fishing 10 together. plus years. Yeah. 10 plus years. So we've kind of fished head to head a little bit. Uh, and, uh, what's up, Brian? Uh, so, and Kent's the Bassmaster Opens Pro. Uh, he's fished some as a co, some as a pro, I think. Right. And yep. this year you're fishing, you're kind of, Taking it to the next level and fishing all tournaments, both Eastern and Central. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So I'm doing all eight this year, uh, Eastern and Central. And we've gotten one in so far, and we've got seven more coming up. So, right. And you uh, you did decent in that first one, right, in Florida? Yeah, uh, had a very good finish. Uh, got 20th place down on uh, the Kissimmee chain. So it was fun. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's a great start. And like, uh, have you fished in Florida much before that, or in the Kissimmee chain, or? Yeah, so I was down there on the Harris chain the year before oh, with the Eastern. Um, I did that as I did that as a boater last year on the Opens, the Eastern side. Fished the Harris chain, and then the year before that, I was actually on the Kissimmee chain um, at, as a co angler. So I had a little bit of experience there. Um, none that really applied that i used but it was still good yeah. to kind of lay the land. you didn't have to, like, you kind of exactly. knew where the lakes were you knew how they set up you kind of knew where a few ramps were like it wasn't like in in some ways it's almost better because i didn't have any preconceived notions or like expectations of where i should really catch them because i was just riding along with a pro doing his game basically um the year before but kind of knew you weren't shocked by what you saw but then at the same time you didn't have like you weren't you weren't saddled with uh, a bunch of information that wasn't so that's cool yeah eric in uh chad eddings is here frankie what's up guys thanks everybody for joining 
up, guys? Uh, so that's great. I mean, obviously, a top 20, that actually puts you in a position. So, like, I know this is jumping fast forward. If you have a good season and you finish in the top five of the points, uh, do you believe that you'll make the jump at that time to the elites if that opportunity came around? Uh, at this point, my goal is to get that opportunity. If things fall in place to where it works out, I would, I would love to take advantage of it if I can. Um, right. But a lot of things have to fall in place for that. So I'm just taking it one tournament right. at a time. So, but I mean, like that is your end goal. Like that's what you'd really, that's, you'd like to make that as your profession. But A, you need to catch them consistently on the open to make it happen. And then you'll need to get the deals and the financial backing to go with it. You're not going to like mortgage your home and max all your credit cards just to, to fulfill the dream. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's uh it's a dream for sure. I'll put right. it that way. I know I got a lot of work to do um, before I get to that point, but that's all Absolutely. part of this process. Right. And that, I mean, almost, I mean, honestly, I think it'd be better. I mean, for most guys, the guys that like go hard their first season, the opens and, things work out and they do it. I think they sets them up for a kind of a rude awakening when they move up. I think it's almost better to literally grind it out for two, three, five years, see these types of lakes and get a much bigger sample size. And it's almost better to like consistently move up and make that top five over a few years than it is to like have a banner season and get there right away. I think you're just, you'll be a more prepared angler. So um, and I think uh, if you ever, if you know, Greg De Palma, he had like, he, he qualified early and he decided not to do it because of financial reasons. And then he was like close, close, close and made it. And now he's like in a much better situation. So I think, uh, you know, there's, I know a lot of people say like never pass that up once you get it, but I think if you're not ready, you're not ready. And that could potentially set you back to where you could like never recover and get back if it's too soon. So um, I think uh, it's the, it's a long game for sure. Yep. Absolutely. And then next week you leave for Muskogee. Yeah, that's right. The Arkansas River. I've never been uh, never been fishing in Oklahoma or or Arkansas for that matter. So, so I feel like I should be teaching you about all these power techniques so you could use those on the Arkansas River instead of we talking about finesse tonight. Yeah, we probably should. Maybe we can do something <laughs> offline. <laughs> all right. So we're going to talk a lot about finesse uh, for those that are rolling in, and a little bit about forward facing sonar and how those go together. Uh, and Eric asks, have you been getting any smallmouth, Kent? And I think let's let's kind of parlay that into, A, have you been smallmouth fishing lately? And then uh, let's roll into how finesse plays into smallies for you. Yeah, for sure. So I'll jump right in with a smallmouth. Uh, I love smallmouth, and um, I, I'm just completely addicted to smallmouth fishing. So that's, kind of, I think, part of the reason why I like finesse fishing so much, because they go hand in hand really well. <laughs> Um, but I have been fishing a lot out here. I, I'm staying out on Lake Coronas, um, and there's good smallmouth population out here. A lot of big ones, and uh, been fortunate enough to catch quite a few so far this spring. So, um, as far as uh, finesse fishing goes for smallmouth, this is me checking my DMs from Kent for the. <laughs> Anybody else checking their phone? No, man, I've been quarantined up, man. I've just been fishing by myself, and um, I I do miss fishing with other guys and stuff. Yeah. We've just been trying to be as safe as possible. I just started. like So I fish with Bill across the street, and our kids are already playing in the neighborhood. So it's like 
But then uh, last last week at Malax, we went through to a boat with another guy from Pirate Cook Setters in our boat. So I'm slowly opening up my circle a little bit. My yeah. wife slowly becoming tolerant of the thought of that. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, I completely understand that for sure. Um, but so so far for smallmouth this year, it's really been the Ned rig for me. Um, mm-hmm. That that bait has been absolutely incredible for smallmouth. Um, I think one of the deals um, in my mind, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot. Of, well, I know for sure there's a lot of perch on this lake in Coronas, sure. and I think that slow fall of the TRD, it kind of falls in a spiral motion a little bit. It just mm-hmm. looks like looks like a perch swimming around and i know those smallmouth eat up on those perch a lot um so i think it's a good imitator for that um i also i I think it's a nice size for a smallmouth you know they're they're keyed in on smaller baits a lot of times um seems to work well and something about the way it stands up on the bottom i think it really gets a smallmouth's attention too yeah there's no doubt that ned's and smallmouth go like PB and J for sure. Like, uh, so it sounds like you like the Z man. Do you think that flotation thing is important? I do. Yeah, for sure. I've, um, I've had other guys in the boat with me try other baits and not had as much success. For, so for me, that's good enough. I'm, I'm pretty simple when it comes to baits and techniques and, um, for me, it, it just seems like it makes sense in my head that they're going to want to pick something up off the bottom that's kind of sitting there wiggling versus laying on the bottom. So Right. So when you're talking about the standard Seaman TRD, which is like, what, a 2.75-inch yep. right? What is yep. your, your head, like, choice, or what do you like for a head? Um, so I I've poured some of my own that – I kind of like, and then I really like the Outcast Perfect Neds. Okay. Um, I like the hook that they put in there. It's super strong. The keeper is long, which I really like because it goes down further into the bait and seems to hold it a lot better. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's just nice components. More to show, or do you got those handier? Yeah, I got some back here. We like to see on this channel. <laughs> This one's pretty well tore up, but this one might be able to get a good look at the head here. So is that the one? That's the perfect net, right? That's the perfect net head, and it's got you can see the little flat spot on the flat, head. Flat spot on the head, yep. And then the longer keeper. Um, take this TRD off, but yeah, so it's got it's got a nice long keeper on it. Oh. Yeah, down the shank. Yeah, I know some guys like that, some don't. I think the one knock I heard on the longer keeper is that it's not necessarily tied to the hook, right? So if you're not careful when threading on, it tends to separate. Yep. Like you kind of need to almost like pinch it down when you start it to get uh, so it doesn't want to pull up on you. I also know some people that will like wrap that with some braid or something and tie that down, which will just, cause otherwise it can like be a little wonky and if it gets bent and it starts fighting the elastic. And so that, that's the only downside I've heard about that, the long keeper. Anything to add to that or? No, you hit on it exactly with my homemade stuff. That's exactly what I do is I, you know, I wrap it with thread. So I just got some, I just got like a basic jig 
pouring kit from uh, Barlow's Tackle or something like that. And it came with a spool of thread, and I just wrapped that up and super glue it, and then it really holds on. They're really nice. And do you do you still super glue the Elastec to the net heads even with the keeper? Or no, I haven't been. And I I mean I I've caught probably over thirty smallmouth in a day on the same TRD net head or uh, TRD finesse TRD elastic. Okay. So they last forever. Right. Any and, threading uh, elastic that you like? Because I know it, like for some people, if you haven't done it, it can, it's different. Like that's like any tips or any suggestions uh, to be successful more often uh, with the elastic and getting it right. Cause like, I assume you want it pretty straight. Yeah, you do. You do want it straight. Um, although I've found that it doesn't really need to be perfect. I'm not too anal about that personally. Um, I wish I had a better TRD to show you, but they've got a little slot. Um, when they're not as tore up as mine is, they've got a little slot going down sure. the middle. And so a good thing to do is just, I always just, um, take the bait horizontal or uh, vertical like this and try and put the tip right in the center of the bait, run it down through and then come out that slot. And usually it ends up being about halfway to three quarters of the way down the slot. So the slot is kind of on the, like the, the dimpled end, right? Is that yep. what you're... yep. Are you coming from this side of the hook? Yep. Okay. Interesting. And I then I, I then yeah. I come, then I come out this, what's that? I think I've always rigged them from this side when I've done it. When my when mine gets wore out on the dimple side, sure. then I just flip it around and rig it on the other side. But yeah, I, I guess I don't I don't worry too much about it being perfectly straight, like I would like a swim bait or something like that. Because a lot of it, a lot of it um, on the fall, I actually I don't mind having a little bit of a spiral to it or or um, you know erratic fall instead of just falling exactly straight down. I'm not too concerned about that. So if you like a little bit sizable hook, yeah, there's, there's the Bass Tech new Ned jig, slightly bigger than the the two aught instead of a one aught. Yeah, and yeah, I would definitely, think? I would definitely feel more comfortable throwing that wider gap hook for largemouth for mm -hmm. sure. Um, I feel like there's just something about their mouths that works out better for a wider gap hook. Um, sure. So yeah, I guess my smallmouth uh, technique isn't broke, so I'm not going uh, sure. to, no. I, I wouldn't fix it, but I would definitely try the best tech for a large mouth for sure. Well, what do you think about tungsten as a Ned head? Do you think that waste of time? Do you think it would add something to the game? What is your, I mean, like, do you feel like feeling transition in rocks is important to the Ned game or what's your thoughts? Is this a trick question? No, I'm just curious <laughs> if you benefit or not. No, no. I, um, so I, I absolutely think tungsten is a benefit um, for feel. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will drag a Ned rig occasionally. Um, a lot of the way that I fish it though is going to be targeted cast to a specific spot. And I'm usually just letting it sit there or bounce it a couple times and reel it in. So if I was um, dragging it somewhere, maybe on a gravel flat or a gravel to rock transition, a gravel to sand transition, where I'd want to know where that money spot is, I could definitely see how the tungsten might come into play. 
Nice. Yeah. Um, and this this hook caught like a forty five plus inch muskie on Sunday, so it's it's muskie approved. So like definitely yeah. about uh, any bass straightening out your hook as long as you have your a reasonable finesse uh, setup. So. Um, do you throw anything else? Do you like mess around with particular Z's or the hula sticks or like any of the other shapes that Z-Man does? Or are you just like TRD all day? Yeah, I mess around with their craw one, the mm-hmm. finesse, finesse craw, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, I I don't know that I've really had anything that's, that's really proven that it's a better bait in any particular situation. Sure. Um, if I'm just looking to do something a little bit different, then I'll try it. But Maybe like, uh, yeah, like change it up. Like you kind of, you, you think there's a few more fish there. You might want to try something a little different. I, yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but I think like that Sukoshi bug. Yeah. Which is also, is, I think Z-Man makes this or light, it's the stretchy plastic. I think that a little bit bigger profile than like a okay. T. But uh, it's kind of like, like, I don't know, like it's a little bit bigger, a little meatier. I could definitely see that's, I don't know, I, I haven't tried it yet, but I think that's a good looking Bait. I don't know. I've always been interested in those. I see Josh Douglas post about those quite a bit on, on his stuff, and it looks like an is- interesting bait. But like I said, I'm pretty simple when it comes to this yeah. stuff. So. I do like – I played around with these a little bit, and I've had success with these, which is the the TRD Tickler Zs. Okay. Basically a TRD with a little bit of tube tentacles on it. So I don't know if that makes a difference, but to me, in my head – it gives me more confidence. So, and I think that's the biggest thing. Like, honestly, if you're confident in the bait you're putting on the back of that net, you're probably miles ahead, regardless of what the actual bait is. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, so yeah, anything else? Like, so what's your rod, reel, setup, line? Are you straight floral? Are you braid to leader? What's, what's, uh, what's your suggestion? For- yes. So I, I love a 10 pound braid um main line and then uh um usually an eight pound fluoro leader mm-hmm. and i typically run about a f- 15 foot leader or so i, I usually i usually like thing. almost to the reel and then mm-hmm. that's kind of about the right length for me so like down to the butt and almost to the reel type yep yep and um that's that's going to give you the benefit of uh, fairly invisible line with the fluorocarbon, and then you're going to have no line twist with the braid. So mm-hmm. um, that's, I mean, that setup is basically what I run on all my spinning rods. Okay. So you think the does the length of the leader matter for line twist, or just the fact that you're going braid to fluoro? Um, it does matter. I've had tournaments where I've tried to run a, a little bit longer floral leader and it'll it'll actually get the braid twisting pretty pretty good so i feel like a shorter floral leader okay. will will end up with less line twist so you're saying anything over that 10 to 12 feet is when you start running into line problems yeah yeah and sometimes it's worth it for me like i feel like um if i'm dropping straight down on fish with a drop shot mm-hmm. um the benefit of having floral coming off the spool probably outweighs that risk of line twist, but I, I just know I'm going to have to re-spool it or tie a new floral leader on that night. Why? So when you're, <laughs> so why is that? What's the benefit you think dropping on them 
with a longer leader. So what happens with that braid of floral knot is when it gets up in your reel, your line um, crosses over it and uh, it gets hung up on it when it's trying to come off the reel. But if you have straight fluoro coming off the reel, it's going to be able to come Sorry. off your reel. So you're talking about that. You don't want it to ever catch when you're trying to drop on them. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, and, uh, and it really only is a problem when you're dropping on them. If you're casting at all, that momentum um, kind of alleviates that issue. Uh, but if you're dropping straight down with even like a fairly decent weight uh, okay. with no momentum, just trying to go straight down, it, it does seem to catch every every once in a while, which can be problematic. Well, so the other option is you could go shorter, right? You could go with like a six foot leader and it wouldn't catch, right? Yeah, you could. Um, probably why I haven't noticed it. It's probably because most of my leaders are only six to eight feet long. Then you're retying leader a lot, which gets time consuming in a tournament situation. So, I mean, or you're lazy like me and you don't retire that often. Um, <laughs> so the leader length, like going 10, 12, 15 feet, the main reason you're doing that is to not have to retie a leader as often or go long. You can retie your, your bait and your setup more often before you have to retie a leader. Is that the main reason you're going with a longer leader? Or yeah. Not? Yeah. That's, that's the main reason for me. And that's one of my key components with finesse fishing is retying a lot. Cause mm -hmm. that, cause I, I'm a firm believer in putting finesse tactics in places where you really shouldn't be. And when you do that, um, you're going to nick up your line and, I don't, I don't mess around with any kind of nicks or any type of blemishes on my line. So I retie a lot. It's probably because I only make like 10 casts with my spinning rod a day. So <laughs> <is awesome>. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That um, what size, like, so what size you said your Ned, did you, did you talk about your rod? Like you say seven foot medium? Yeah. Yeah. Listening, but. Seven foot medium. Yep. So, so pretty much all my finesse stuff is going to be a seven foot medium. Um, the only exception is going to be my fly rod. I've got a, a little bit longer fly rod. I should actually have an even longer fly rod, but um, so that that's like the hair jig fighter fly is what I like to use a lot. And um, you want a little bit <laughs> more the hair on Sunday and didn't get a single bite. <laughs> yeah, it's uh it, it's a it's a good bait it, it's situational for sure i i think um this is usually a pretty good time for it but when they're locked on beds sometimes it, it gets tough to get them on anything that's not right in their bed so so mom 21 says what's uh what's a net head that has a good hook and i say both the lcast perfect net has a good hook that i personally use and i also like uh the bass tech which uh, is a really good hook as well because of tungsten. So both of those you can get at Tackle Warehouse, the LCAST Ned, you can get at Omnia. Um, so there's a few other good options, but those are the ones that I've personally used that I can say uh, have a good hook. Um, what they use? I believe the LCAST is a Gamagatsu. Is that something or is it a VMC? I'm not, sure. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, I do know the Bass Tech is a 2 watt light wire must-add uh, hook, but it's stronger than a lot of the net heads that are very flimsy out there. Um, what weight does your rod load at? Brian Waterman says. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> um, 
So, and then what size reel? Like, what's your thoughts on reel size for spinning reels? That's kind um, of, people have different thoughts on that as far as finesse. Right. Yeah. I, I like, I like the 3000 size on Shimano. Um, uh-huh. I, I use basically Shimano reels for spinning and Daiwa reels for bait casting um, for pretty much all my setups. I do have a Daiwa spinning reel that I think is pretty nice as well. But um, for the most part, the Stratic CI4 Shimano uh-huh. 3000 series is my bread and butter for sure. Yeah, I 100% agree. I got that with me over in the corner where I can't reach them. I've got uh, a couple of Shimano CI4s, the old black and red ones that I like the 3000 and those. And then depending on the year and the model of the Shimano, like one year, I thought the Procyon 3000 was about perfect. And then the Tatula, the 4000 was the right size because I ended up buying a 3000 and I thought it was too small. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but I, for me, Shimano and Iowa all the way as far as, like, all my reels uh, as well. But I like that bigger size spool. Um, and I think for a lot of the same reasons. We have, like, the same color braid. Did you see that? You're like, yeah. Look that. There is something to that light braid, too. It, it, it definitely helps you detect bites, uh, especially find it useful on cloudy days. Um mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I always run it just because you never know when, when you're going to want it, but, um, it, it's super helpful to, to see a slack line bite or even just to see your line swimming away, like on a windy day, um, or that, like even keeping track of your line, like, where is it? Uh, yeah, I like the high vis for most stuff. The only time I go with a dark braid is like on a dock rod, um, because sometimes I'll get frustrated and I will abandon the fluorocarbon leader. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm going to tie directly to a, a hook. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the, the 3000, 4000, depending on uh, the, the manufacturer and the model, of the reel is important because I think um, it gives you more uh, like the re- they don't necessarily have higher gear ratios, but because it's a bigger school, you're getting more inches of line for take up, which I think is important when you're potentially fighting like uh, big fish that tend to like really surge fast. Um, and then I think the castability and the line management are big pluses. You get longer casts and you get less line twist. Um, so I think those are the main reasons. And, and they're a little bit heavier, but I think if you get a decent reel and the way technology has gone, uh, I don't think it's a big deal as much as it used to be maybe like 15 years ago where a 4,000 size reel would have been like a real clunker. I think they've, they've come done a lot to lightweight them. So that big drawback I don't think really exists. And I think the benefits outweigh that. Yeah, I agree 100%. I don't really have much to add to that. I think you nailed it. Brian was asking, he wants to know what the lure rating is. Uh, so, like, on most of my rods, the they range from one-eighth to a half-ounce. Yeah, my Ned, my Ned rod is uh, three-sixteenths to five-eighths, it says. but yeah. Both of mine are eighth or half, so that's right in that similar range. Um, I, throw, I throw plenty of eighth-ounce that right. heads on that rod and have no problems with it. So, yeah, I'd even throw in 10th ounce on that rod. So, and, yeah. Uh, so, um, all right. Well, I think we talked to Ned. We talked overall general finesse setups. I think we kind of agree. We're both kind of in that medium to medium light. We like it. I got most of my rods are seven to seven foot four. They're all like two power Dobbins. Uh, I'm mainly running same thing, 10 to 12 pound braid. 
to usually an eight pound floral leader. I tend to run slightly shorter leaders probably because I'm lazy um, and, uh, and I don't fish that much finesse. Um, but, and then anytime you, will you drop down to six or go up to 10 for any reason for finesse? Um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes if I'm on a place where I know I'm not going to be around structure, uh, any type of abrasive cover, I might drop down to six, um, clear type stuff or clear type stuff or pressured fish. Um, when we had our TOC on Malax, I was running six pound, um, fluorocarbon for my drop shot setup and. I don't know if it actually got me any more bites or not, but uh, sure. it's it's just something that I'll try for pressured fish because I don't know if you remember practice on that tournament, but it was uh, maybe it wasn't your experience, but I thought it was kind of a grind. So I was doing anything I could think of to get more bites. Yeah, I got more bites during the tournament than I did in practice. I think. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, wasn't, I wasn't on them for sure. Yeah, but if there's any risk of being around weeds, I, I think eight is usually pretty good around grass unless there's zebra mussels in the lake then it can be problematic but eight pound line these days is pretty strong stuff right. especially if you're buying it i mean do you have a floral that you stick to or yeah i like the invisex um cigar uh-huh. invisex and then i also splurge a little bit on eight pound tatsu just because i use so much eight pound um, if I'm going to have tatsu for anything, it's going to be that. Um, yeah, I actually buy eight pound tatsu because I'm typically only, use, well, for me, I'm only using like six feet at a time. You're using 12 feet at a time, but like, sure. It's a 30, $40 spool of line, but should last you all summer. A long time is leader material. So I definitely yeah. think it's worth investing in, especially if you're fishing tournaments or if you're fishing around big fish and you like finesse. Um, it's a noticeable difference with that stuff too. I I know you like it too, but it's like you tie a knot and it ties better, and you um, it it seems to be more abrasion resistant. I think too, um, oh, which is a big even, plus. I've dabbled with like the twenty pound for bait casters, and it's so nice. But yeah. I I burn through. I mean, like on my dock rod, <laughs> on my jig rod, I burn through a lot of fluorocarbon, so I end up using a lot more like. Uh, right shooter and stuff i mean still still buy decent fluorocarbon but like yeah it gets expensive with that tattoo yeah uh, for sure ask favorite ned baits we kind of covered this but we'll touch on it before we hop off neds uh, i think kent is pretty much trd all day all every day <laughs> uh, z-man yeah. um and i think i use the trd and i also use the uh, the trd ticklers a little bit which we talked about which is basically really similar profile to the z-man trd but it's got just a little bit of a tube tentacles on the bottom. So that's just a little confidence thing for me. So, uh, but otherwise we keep it pretty simple. We're not doing anything crazy. I bought a few other ones to play around with, but I'm not going to talk about them until I catch some fish on them. So. Yep. Ned's over. What's the, right. ne- when the Ned stops working or what, what's your next finesse for smallmouth that you're, uh, well, we're kind of going in order of the season. Like I like that Ned early on, um, springtime pre-spawn. It seems to be a really good bait. Um, it's a deadly bait. If you choose to fish beds, uh, they seem to really hate having that thing standing up in their beds. Um, but once all that's over, um, post-spawn, I'll, I'll still, I mean, I'll throw the net all, all year long. But really, I, I, I start breaking out the drop shot. <laughs> I start breaking out the drop shot um, pretty much post-spawn uh, for smallmouth. 
mm-hmm. and and go with it through the summer, definitely into fall too. So um, I think I drop think that, shots. I think that makes sense because I think smallmouth is the water warms up. They tend to get higher in the water column, so that only makes sense. I think, right? Yeah, they do, um, especially on like a sunny, calm day. You'll see them higher up in the water column a lot. Um, I don't quite get it. Like from a largemouth perspective, you'd think on a sunny, calm day, they're going to be holding real close to that cover and kind of hiding in the shade and shadows and whatever. But for a smallmouth on a sunny, calm day, they seem to be elevated up off the bottom and they'll get on top of humps and do really strange things. But uh, my favorite thing about them is when they get shallow when it's slick and calm. Right. Yep. Yeah, it's um, crazy. But for you guys that maybe don't live, I think that's a northern smallmouth thing or a natural lake thing. I think from what I've heard, like TVA smallmouth, Tennessee smallmouth, down south smallmouth, opposite. They act more like largemouth from what I understand. Yeah. I don't know if it's a function of the smallmouth or is it the function of the forage in the lakes where our smallmouth exists. That's probably what it is, that there's something about the smelt or the emerald shiner or the perch or that type of forage in our natural lakes probably does something when the sun comes up and the small eyes probably follow them. Um, and it may be something with the shad and the stuff they have down there. That would be just be my guess. So um, definitely it could be region specific what we're talking about, but in general, Northern small, I hundred percent agree. The calm bluebird slick days, they will get crazy shallow and high in the water column and you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, one one thing I'll add to that too in the south is uh, most smallmouth are going to be current related in the south as well. So that completely changes the game with conditions. Um, they're really just going to be keyed in on that current. Sure. So yeah, so you're talking. Uh, you start to use a lot more drop shot. Um, yeah. Late spring into summer. Yep. That's still there just in case. Yep. Um, what uh so you said is it still still 10 pound to eight pound right that really yeah day in day out for smallmouth that's going to be my deal is 10 10 pound braid to a eight pound leader um i have three different types of drop shots that i throw on any given day i'll have two on the deck and then i can switch one over so so my three types are uh target casting drop shot um so this is where the forward looking sonar really comes into play that we can touch on later but basically i'm i'm scanning around the lake looking for a specific target to cast at whether that's a boulder or even just a a small group of rocks that's on a gravel flat or something like that i am trying to put my bait within a few feet of that target um so that's a small spine a little ridge a big boulder um, a, a, a sunken tree, uh, something very specific where uh, yep. territorial smallmouth or small group of smallmouths will hunker down on a specific target. Yep, exactly. Yep. Um, it, any type of little uh, variation in the bottom. I mean, the, like an underwater dock for, for like to break it down for like layman's people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like that. And you don't have to skip either. So it makes it easier. Um, so that's drop shot setup. Number one, setup number two is going to be my drop, my, uh, dropping rig, I guess. I, I don't know what you call it, but the one I use to drop vertically down on them, basically so a fish on your sonar. You're going to drop on it and you have a separate setup for that. Yep. I have a separate setup. Um, usually going to have well, almost always going to have a heavier weight on it. Um, 
a lot of times I'm trying to get a reaction strike out of them when I'm dropping on them. Um, so I'll run like a half ounce to a three quarter ounce um, pencil tungsten weight. Thanks. And, and um, it's going to be that that's where I'll maybe go to a little bit lighter line too. Cause there's absolutely no reason why I'm going to get hung up with that fish on anything. So I'm not afraid. Were, like on a weed edge or you were dropping in timber, right? Usually you're yeah. not rock, but usually you can like shock them to get them away from that rock pretty quick. So. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And with the, with a dropping on rocks, actually, I, I try and do that more backed off away from them. So that, that's where I'll use my target drop shot setup for that. Um, and then the, 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 your drop setup is more, I'm fishing my casting <laughs> or I'm fishing something else. And yep. I, uh, the corner of my eye, I like reel up, reel up, drop that one down. Exactly. Yeah. Or like on, on the, on the second day of the TOC, I think we had those slick calm conditions um mm -hmm. i was i was just um driving around with my trolling motor looking for a mark to drop on one sure. so sometimes i'll do that too where i'm just wheeling around like aimlessly around where i've caught them in the past and just looking for them roaming or suspended up doing whatever they're doing absolutely yeah i mean like especially on the I mean, if you have really deep boulders, you can a lot of times pull up on them and drop on them. But yeah, you're usually better off even a short pitch, maybe 10, 20 feet away, making that cast or that pitch to that boulder than getting right on top of it and, and dropping on them. Um, yeah. But sometimes you can be spot locked casting at that boulder and all of a sudden you look down and go, oh, there's a different one. <laughs> or yeah. if you're on a spot that has a school or you're fishing a reef or whatever. And a lot of times when you catch a couple that you're going to pull that school towards you. And that's when you got to like, especially keep an eye on that, uh, that sonar because they smallies love to hide under boats. Like, Oh yeah. Like even when you're chasing them shallow or fishing out deep, they like to have it over their head. Like you, you they'll sit right under your boat. Yeah. Like don't ever think that like, and that's, I think a lot of times, uh, in that we keep referencing that TOC on the lax guys in the back of the boat wrecked their boaters. Oh yeah. Dropping straight down on fish that they saw. And I think a lot of it had to do with that. Like uh, just fish pull under their boat and they would just be under the outboard and they'd see them on the back raft and they would just like, whoop, just keep catching them. So yeah. Yeah. They're such curious creatures. That's for sure. And they, they do some strange things like that. And they, they do love going under the boat. Even when you're fighting them, they try and go under there. Yeah. So I was going to answer Frankie's question here. Yeah, absolutely. You can drop shot from the bank. Um, there's no reason not to. Um, obviously, you're going to be casting more, not drop shotting, but there's no reason you can't cast. Uh, I've done it like at Monticello in the river. I mean, so there's no reason you can't drop shot from the bank. I would say the only thing is, yeah, you probably want a slightly longer leader the longer you're casting, just because like the longer you're casting, the, the angle of that line. So um, maybe that's a good segue to like, do you do anything different? Uh, a little bit lighter weight when you're casting, but do you do anything with your leader length or your hook or the way you rig the worm when you cast versus drop or the types of baits? Yeah, that's uh, leads me right into my third drop shot setup, which is going to be my dragging rig. And it, it's, it doubles as a drift rig when I'm smallmouth fishing too. So it's going to be a um, little bit longer leader. It's going to be a little, uh, quite a bit lighter weight than the one that I use to drop straight down on them. Um, I usually adjust my weight to 
not get hung up in the rocks that I'm fishing around. Because when I'm fishing for a smallmouth, it's almost always around rock. And if I can get away with a quarter ounce weight, I'd say that's probably on my lighter end. But day in, day out, probably three eighths ounce for a, a dragging rig is usually my standard. And I go pencil um, shape tungsten weights for almost all of my drop shots, except for that dragging style one. I'll, I'll switch between a pencil and a, a ball style. Sure. I, I feel like that ball goes through and or, um, over rocks, similar to like a football head jig would, where it just sort of bounce off the sharp crevices of a rock. So, Yeah, so... Uh, so who's the guest this evening? Sycamore asks. Uh, yeah, this is Kent Middlestat. He's a Bassmaster Opens Pro from uh, Minnesota. So we'll just, uh, when you guys go back and watch the rewind, you can get all the details and on that. And at the end, we'll kind of cover where you can we can follow Kent on some things. So do you, is everything like nose rig? Do you ever like? Is there any difference in the way you rig worms or what I mean? Like when you have three, let's say like you got all three rigged up, they all have the same type of plastic on them. Are you changing that up based on like the presentation or? I mean, if they're biting a certain bait, or do you literally have that rig three times? Uh, or how does that work for you? What's your thoughts? Yeah, so basically, uh, we're still just talking about smallmouth here. So my largemouth drop shot setup is going to be a little bit different. Um, I throw a Texas rig worm on my largemouth setup sure. more times than not. But um, on my smallmouth stuff, I just I really experiment with the plastics quite a bit. On my drag rig, I'm almost always using some type of swim bait. So like a little Key Tech Easy Shiner, that type of bait um, seems to be sort of my go-to for a drag rig, a drag drop shot rig. And then my my straight vertical drop on them, I, I like the KVD Dream Shot quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Yeah. Um, Maybe I know a little something about finesse. Maybe I <laughs> you got it yeah yeah those those are those are money when you're dragging something color? along is that a good color yeah it's a good color um yeah I, I like the uh silver flash that's kind of my go-to but um just any any kind of natural minnow color i think looks pretty good so for your um, drag you like a small boot tail type swimming a lot of times Yep, a lot of times that's what I'm throwing. And then for target stuff, I'll do anything from like a dream shot to a wacky rig Senko, like a four inch. Um, and then uh, another, this uh, TRD comes up again. I actually like nose hooking this on a target drop shot rig. So you just stick the stick your little drop shot hook just through the nose yep. into the bait and. It kind of has some flotation to it, and it seems to work really well. Do you ever wacky rig that TRD? I do. Um, I don't like it as much because yeah. I, I feel like it's so small that I don't know that you get as much benefit right. out of the wacky rig, but to each their own, I guess, on that one. <laughs> I dabbled a little bit this spring with a pink one on a bed. So what about this little guy? You ever oh, yeah. Okay. I do. Yep. I like the I like the little baby tubes. Yeah, they – they look like a little craw, a little bite-sized craw, and yeah, um, yeah that's. A, I don't know how much people do this, but this is like a, a big thing in Minnesota. Like people, especially on the lax and a few other places, this baby tube. It's like a two and a half inch tube. This one's been chewed on a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that's probably my number one bait for drop shot and smallies. That at least I have confidence in as a baby tube. Uh, any kind of green pumpkin, kind of with copper, gold, purple fleck in it. Uh, that's. 
um, that's that's where I that's what I like to do. One nice thing with a with a tube too is if you use um, a cover shot. I don't know if you have messed around with these at all, Rich, but I have some shot. kind of similar to like the finesse Nico VMC and like the rebar book and yeah, but yeah, that's kind of longer straight shank hook with a little keeper on it. Yep. Yeah, so I guess it's mainly that little keeper for me that um, with that tube, you can actually rig the tube up over that keeper and have it yep. come out towards the end of the bait. So if you're having fish that are a little bit negative or just kind of nipping at the bait, um, you, can, you can pick up some extra fish. I didn't have one of those on, but I still do like when I fish that. Like a lot of people nose hook it. I like to like thread it on that little straight shank hook, especially yeah. last Sunday I was kind of bed fishing. So um you know to have that just behind the tentacles um, you are not going to miss anything that grabs that too yeah uh, actually helps with the line like it runs really straight whereas nose hooking can tend to like make it want to spiral i think yeah you um, can get some nasty twists from that for sure um, so one guy says sounds like tungsten only yeah i mean like you don't need tungsten um <clears throat> there are times when it gets super snaggy rocky places that i will especially in practice um, we'll use some lead, but day in, day out, I do like tungsten. Uh, is there any situations where you, uh, vary from that or. Um, not really. I, I guess I've just gotten used to the feel of tungsten and the size of it. Um, I don't know fishing wise, if it really makes that big a difference, but I do like to have that feel. Uh, or, or I guess I should say if the fish actually care, if the, the, profile is smaller on the weight but i do like to have that feel so when sure. i am dragging it through something you, you can definitely feel more with tungsten for yeah, sure i agree for the most part i mean but there are times maybe in my current situation or rocks or things like that i will um <clears throat> so but and the other thing i liked a lot is i like most of my drop shots i like matte black oh yeah you care but like i personally have more confidence throwing a matte black weight um, than anything else. And, and do, you, do you shiny ones? What do you do? I just usually use the shiny ones. Although I think the blackout ones are kind of neat looking and I could see how maybe you might turn a fish off with a shiny one or actually I've seen them do this when I'm bed fishing before is they'll actually nip at the shiny mm -hmm. one, the, the shiny drop shot weight and i haven't noticed them doing that with a black one so maybe for bed thing, i think you get less pikes biting your weight with a black one than you do with a shiny one <laughs> but come back to this tungsten and two dollar or three dollar drop shot weights the blackout might save you some tungsten if you have a place that has pickerel and pike in it yeah yep um so yeah, so yeah, I think we kind of covered as far as I could just keep some of my like I definitely smallies drop shots, yeah, dream shot, the baby tube is a big one for me. Um small Senko's wacky rigged. Um the the baby oh, fluke baby, baby fluke's fluke. a big one for me too. Sure. Um I definitely like that one on lakes that's that have the more minnow type forage or and then you stick to the shad colors at that point or yeah, I like I like a white. I don't know why in that bait. Sure. I don't. I don't typically throw white <laughs> that much on anything else, but it seems to work well for smallmouth. I don't know. And then, um, and then also, I, I haven't talked about this much yet, but smallmouth really seem to hate chartreuse, and 
they get mad and they just want to kill it. So chartreuse is a big color for me too. That's outside of beds. You still use that other times. Yeah, I do. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems to be, um, when they're aggressive, it seems to be a good bait for me or a good color, I should say. So not necessarily when the bite's tough, right? If they're chomping, like you're literally saying, if I put a neon green bait down there, they can see it from 15 feet instead of 10 feet away or 20 feet away. Instead of like, it just gives them much more, much more opportunity to just zone in on it and come rushing at it from a greater distance. That's it. It puts off a glow that they can see from a long ways away. And yeah, something about it. They just go nuts. Um, yeah, definitely shadow bass, and you can definitely get some matte black nail polish and try that if you don't <laughs> repurchase your tungsten. Um, let's see here. Uh, so yeah, I don't think anything else. We're gonna, we're gonna a couple largemouth questions. We're gonna circle back once we get through smallmouth, and then we're gonna kind of talk about a few of the variations for largemouth. Um, so we kind of covered drop shot. Um, what what's next on your list of uh, secret weapons for finesse smallies? Um, another another post post-spawn one like right after they're done spawning i like to get on the flats and throw a fluke and um this is a little bit different setup um i think i i learned it on a zona's awesome fishing show where go ahead yeah um are you nose hooking it with a hitchhiker no uh that's like the tactical bass and way to do it which which is which is going to put a lot of action in the bait. Um, but so the way Zona showed to do it, and I tried it out and it works really well, is uh, you still run your 10-pound mainline braid, mm-hmm. but you're actually going to use a 15-pound fluorocarbon leader on it and a swivel between the two. Sure. I've seen uh, that. Play around with that. <clears throat> yes. So this, the swivel gives you a little bit extra weight, helps you cast, and it keeps the bait down. When you throw a weightless fluke out there um, on light line or I guess on any kind of line, it, it likes to try and come up to the surface and come out. Uh, that swivel on there keeps it subsurface a little bit, and I, I think that works pretty well. But then the, the hook is a little bit different too. So, so the hook that he recommended is just a 4 ot worm hook. And I thought, I'm going to lose and miss all kinds of fish. But when you're using that heavy line and a heavy hook and a six foot six, like medium or a little bit stouter rod, you could use a seven foot medium heavy too if you wanted. Um, It it sticks them really good. And I've been really pleased with it. Um, It seems to be a a good cover water and uh, post spawn type of bait. Yeah, I've actually done that. I think that's even with the swivel and the heavier line and the bigger hook. Uh, I think you can throw that on a baitcaster pretty easily too. Like uh, it's a viable option. Um, I've definitely done that. Uh, played around with that a little bit. Um, so that's that's kind of borderline finesse. It's a good small tactic. <laughs> We're kind of talking power all of a sudden. I think almost to agree with that. Um, yeah, we are. I still throw it on a spinning rod, so. Finesse right. to me, but you can definitely get by with. Uh, uh, so anything, I mean, I was going to get into like Nikos and wacky, anything else, uh, smallie wise or. 
Smalley wise, um, I haven't messed around with with Nico much. I know there's I know there's some um, some guys that swear by using craw type baits with the with a Nico weight in it, fishing it kind of Nico style. Um, it sounds really good to me. I just haven't really put the time in to mess around with that one too much. Is that a Jika or something? This is a Hydra. Okay. Nico Hydra. It's a pretty good, pretty good bad day. <laughs> ah, I was going to say, they probably haven't seen very many of those. You can definitely throw in green pumpkin, like, other, I mean, like, but as well. And, and I mean, <clears throat> but yeah. Um, so but, yeah, not, not so much Nico, but I do throw a wacky, um, mm-hmm. especially when I'm topwater fishing for smallmouth. I always have that wacky as a follow-up bait. Uh, actually, I have a wacky for any type of topwater fishing that I'm doing as a follow-up bait. But sure, absolutely, yeah. So for but, deep, like Ned and uh, drop shot, are your main things? Yeah, yeah. No other sneaky, sneaky like that's your. No, that's basically it. I mean, um, no, not really any sneaky stuff. I I keep it pretty simple. I, I don't get too crazy with the baits and presentations. I get I get carried away with my electronics. Is sure is what I how I build confidence. I guess we want to talk. I guess like a little bit on colors. Are you <clears throat> a lot of natural? I mean, we guess we kind of talk, but I mean, like we talked about the chartreuse as being sneaky and the white for the flukes and some of the shad. Like on your dream shots and some of that other stuff. Is that more natural colors, or is there like are you getting into like the uh, morning dawns and that kind of stuff yeah in clear water i like um like a ghost minnow color in the dream shot i think it's called ghost um almost like a clear bait they seem to pick up on it really well um but it's got to be fairly clear water we're talking like six foot of visibility or more sure um and then if it is dirtier water i'll go to the it's a kvd color um KVD Magic, I think it's yeah. called. It's got a little bit of chartreuse on it, but not real loud. Curl. Yeah, I love that menace grove color. Yeah, <clears throat> um, and then just green pumpkin. A lot of green mm-hmm. pumpkins. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, do we want to talk about how these tactics? Uh, do we want to circle back largemouth, or do we want to jump into the sonar type stuff? What do you think? Yeah, let's hit largemouth first, and then we can okay. hit up the. Uh, sonar last sure so um i guess for largemouth my my bread and butter and what i've done really well at um a couple of the opens that i've fished is fishing a drop shot down south where there's 10 pounders swimming around (laughs) and most guys are afraid to throw it or they just don't think to throw it or it's just not like people don't go to florida and fish a drop shot Right. Um, so, so that kind of gives me confidence that I'm doing something a little bit different, but, um, that's one of the reasons why I like using it is just cause I don't think as many fish have seen it as they have a jig or a Texas rig or whatever it is that most guys are throwing out there. Um, page Mark's book playbook here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what I, what I do is I go to 10 pound fluoro liter instead of eight. Okay. And, and then I'm using the 
owner cover shot instead of uh, on my smallmouth um, nose hook uh, hooks. I use a Nico number two. Okay. But with the large mouth stuff, I like this owner. Um, it seems to be a really, really strong hook. It's that silky gray um, finish that seems seems to be really strong. I don't know if it originated in yeah, saltwater or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's got a little monofilament bait keeper on it. And ninety percent of the time, I'm using. Can you uh, hold it up again for the people that are kind of like yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, owner cover shot. I like the two watt for a six inch worm um, finesse. A zoom uh, trick worm is what I use most of the time. Um, but yeah, it's these are uh, these are what I use to get my twentieth place down on um, the Kissimmee chain. Just a zoom trick worm, but you're going to drop it instead of throwing on a Texas rig like ninety percent of the other guys. Yeah, a lot. A lot of the guys are throwing speed worms and um, you know a curly tail uh, worm or whatever. But um, yeah, I just I was throwing a drop shot and yep, the ultra vibe speed worm is huge yeah, is down the, there. Yeah, worm, but same kind of thing. That's what a lot of guys throw. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's. Uh, same rod, seven foot medium, same reel, just a little bit heavier fluorocarbon leader and a little so bit. Ten pound braids still going to the ten pound floral leader, uh, still using like a 10, 12, 15 foot leader. Yeah, I do. Um, I shorten up the the leader between the the hook and the weight um, for largemouth. A lot of times, I I don't feel like they're going to be as high in the water column as smallmouth are. We didn't talk about that. Did we? What what is your normal leader length for smallies? Just backtrack a little bit. Um, normal, yeah, I would say is, between the casting and the dropping and the covers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nor, normal for casting, I, I'd say is probably like eighteen inches to yeah. maybe twenty, and or maybe twenty four or whatever, somewhere in there, and then on. Uh, large mouth, I'd say it's probably more like 10 to 15, somewhere in there. So I'm not going super short, but um, yeah, again, I just feel like they're not as high up in the water column as smallmouth are, or willing to chase as far anyway. And then when you're targeting large mouth with your uh, kind of Texas rig drop shot, right? Yeah. You're, you're talking about that. You're Texas rigging that, that trick worm on there. Yep, right? exactly. How you do that in Minnesota as well? Yeah, it works great here. Um, yeah, so in Florida, what I was keying in on was isolated clumps of hydrilla. Mm -hmm. But you can do the same exact thing in Minnesota with isolated clumps of milfoil or coontail yeah. or whatever it is. Um, so in Florida, um, both the Harris chain and the Kissimmee chain, there's, there's um, basically the lake is six to eight feet deep the whole thing so you, you can go around pretty much anywhere in the lake and find an isolated clump of hydrilla where in minnesota it gets a little trickier because you you have more of a weed line that comes out and so then what i what i really try and target is those little clumps or points that come off of the weed line if there's if there's a clump of milfoil that's isolated away from the weed line um I feel like that can be a really high percentage spot. You're kind of treating like offset clumps of milfoil, coontail, whatever it might be, basically treating that like you would a boulder on the lines. Exactly. 
Yeah, it's target fishing. Yep. Um, Brian says, do you guys use drop shot? Do you prefer baits that float on drop shots? Um, not necessarily. I mean, you were just talking about the <clears throat> most of the baits you're talking about are not necessarily not heavily salted baits, but they're not floating baits either, right? I mean, yeah. The only exception I think is that TRD that I'll put on a on on a drop shot or on a smallmouth drop shot rig, but for the most part, I'm imparting the action in the lure. Um, you're kind of lifting it and letting it go up, so you have kind of a direct pull up. Yes, so I'll, I'll I'll shake and I'll bounce and I'll I'll put the action into the bait myself. So I don't know that the flotation really does much the way I fish it. I don't either because a senko is a killer drop shot bait as well, and they sink like a rock. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so and you kind of just vary the color. Obviously, you're using June bug because that's the deal in Florida. Uh, Probably more green pumpkins and watermelon up here, or do you very much on that? Or yeah, I I I'll run the June bug up here too. I think it looks like a nice yeah. like um, dark sunfish color, uh, okay. and it's also kind of purple, which um, for whatever reason seems to work well. Um, I think you get some of the bluegills that have sort of that violet color to them as well. Um, so, so it's not out of place, but I will, yeah, I'll mess around with green pumpkin. It's no different than throwing a black and blue jig on the weed line. I mean, don't yeah. so I mean, like at some point, you're right. The, the, everything starts to lose color and purple and blue are the ones that stand out the most. So, um, if it is a matter of getting the fish to see it, it makes sense to have a June bug, even on our water. That's generally pretty clear up here. So, yeah. yeah. So here are you mostly zoom trick worms or do you, do you play around with other stuff? uh here for largies yeah for for the drop shot uh, yeah mostly zoom trick worms um and um yeah it just seems seems to work for me pretty much anywhere i take it i i used it on chickamauga i I didn't have a great finish there but i got a decent limit each day and um caught them on it there i caught them on it at the harris chain and the kissimmee chain and caught actually quite a few fish on it in practice on um the tidal body in virginia and blinking on the, the james river sure. uh, so i mean it, it works it works kind of coast to coast and do you fit you'll fish that like uh like when you went to the james and some of these other places were you fishing a little shallower like were you on the james i was targeting cypress knees so it's like the root system of cypress trees that grows out basically is in the water like um i think i was throwing it in maybe six to eight feet of water on cypress knees they go they get pretty deep there so yeah sure i mean but do you i say the great thing about a zoom trick worm is it's like 20 of them for like four dollars so yeah you can just you can burn through bags of them and uh it's not like burning through kitex and robo worms and that kind of stuff so Right, and you can you can bite the tip off and kind of reuse them, and yeah, you can make a bag last for a long time. What is that six, seven inch worm trick worm? What is it? Yeah, it's a six. Pretty sure six it's inch. Yeah. Like especially if you can use it on pull. How much? How far will you go down before you like? Okay, this is too small. I'm gonna get a new worm. Just one bite. Just because they're yeah, just because they're so cheap. I mean, I yeah, I feel like it's not that big of a waste if I can get a couple fish on them. I'm, I'm pretty happy. Do you ever those? 
I I do. I more Nico rig them. Um, you a wacky rig them on a drop shot, like they always Texas rig them. Um, I've tried it in current situations a little bit, but yeah, I feel more confident with the Texas rig. Yes. Have you ever like fish a chat? I mean, you ever pitching that thing around logs or docks or stuff like that? Yeah, I do. I um, yeah, I'll fish it around dock pilings and um, I'll, I'll fish it around timber. I might break off quite a bit, but um, I feel like I'm putting again. It's kind of my whole mantra is putting a finesse tactic where most guys aren't. Um, so yeah, I'll go. I'll go down a bank that's got wood on it and use it for sure. Yes. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, I think we kind of covered the largemouth drop shot. You actually keep it much simpler, probably. I probably like do around more with other stuff when I'm drop shotting for largemouth than you do. <laughs> uh, so let's. I, I assume you also throw the net for largies. So I do. That up differ for you or not change? Um, if I'm fishing it on Minnetonka with the zebra mussels out there, I'll go up to ten pound line occasionally. Um, a lot of times I'll stick with the eight and just risk it, but. Yeah, I, I kind of go back and forth on that one. But, do you use um, any of your head when you go to 10-pound, or do you still stay like an 8-pound? Um, most of the time, I'm using the 8-ounce, a little bit of the 316s. Okay. Yeah. Same TRD, same jigs? What's? Yeah, it's it's basically the same thing for me. I'm just throwing it in a little bit different situations so i like i like that bait outside the weed line when they like late summer they seem to wander out into the sand outside of weed lines a little bit more and um uh, I, I like to let it sit more for largemouth i don't know if it's just that point in the summer they get a little bit lethargic but i'm not moving it as much either how we call dead stick in a four inch jig worm uh, four inch jig worm is that dead I mean, Especially what an Ed rig is. Is I mean, we've been dead sticking four inch finesse worms on uh, jig heads forever in Minnesota. So, yeah, yeah, I think it is really a, a similar thing. I, it, it's still a, a different rod and different technique for me throwing the jig yeah. worms. So, I, I like to I like to put I mean, the jig worm. Like downsizing that another step, right? I mean. It's basically the same thing, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, my my version of the jig worm is um, I'm using a Outcast Money Head, which has got a um, beefier hook, yeah. and it's a little bit different shape head. I'm not sure how much that part matters, but um, I think it's got a 60 degree line type. If I'm not mistaken, it might be 90. But uh, I'm using usually a four or five inch senko. Right. Uh, and I'm I'm trying to get it hung up in the weeds. I'm throwing it basically right up into the weeds. Um, so whether it's a, a clump or a weed line, normally a weed line for me. Yeah, there's the the money head. It is ninety. Yeah, I'm just saying. Like, I think it's yeah, it's a like I think a lot of people consider the net head like this new thing, but I'm saying it's really just like a small adaptation of like the jig worm. Um, yeah. Are the same but um i think the biggest difference is that elastic plastic sure. um and then just the lightness of the head i guess some guys were using that gopher tackle super light heads back in the day too with yeah, the, I mean, the like just, those literally those things were 
basically netheads back in the day. Like, yeah, were tiny. I mean, like, I think there's barely any lead to them. Elite or their whatever upgraded ones, but the original ones were a glorified crappie jig. Like their hooks were super light, and like you'd straighten them out, and they were just like yeah, you'd put them in an old producto, and they'd be like one segment in where the hook came out, and like they were just tiny little things. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, so, would you consider the jigworm as part of your uh, largemouth finesse game, or is that uh, not finesse for you? I, I I consider it finesse because I'm still throwing it on fairly light line. I'm throwing it on eight or ten pound fluorocarbon leader and throwing it on a spinning rod. Um, do do you use a slightly heavier rod for your jig worm, or do you use the same rod? I do use a little bit heavier rod. Um, I'm still using a medium, but I throw it on a seven three instead of seven foot. Um, so I think you get a little bit more backbone out of that. Yeah, I think uh, I agree. And I, I mean, jigworm is probably like, I've been throwing that like before I ever thought about throwing a drop shot, uh, you know, or any of this stuff. So, uh, and I agree. I use a slightly heavier rod. I saw you in the seven or seven, three type rod. Uh, I tend to go to 10 pound fluorocarbon most of the time, uh, just cause I think it helps get out of the grass a little better. Um, like I said, usually using like an eighth or a three sixteenth ounce head, a little bit bigger hook. A lot of times, I'm, I think a Senko or a Yum Dinger is actually, I kind of like Yum Dingers better because I think they stand up a little better than a Senko on a Jigworm. Um, so I'm much more likely to use a generic or a knockoff stick bait than a, an actual Senko for a Jigworm. These, uh, these Arsenal Boomstick. Arsenal Boomsticks work great. They're a good jig head worm for sure. Yeah, Dingers packs too, which is nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and I, yeah, I think the key, you, you kind of want to hit that edge of the weed line and want it to catch on those outside clumps and then snap it free. And it's kind of a finesse reaction bite. Um, I would try to think of anything else I would say to that. Um, yeah, I kind of stick to blacks and greens on my stick baits for that. I do occasionally mess around with a few other, I mean, I used to throw the heck out of a power worm on that technique, but I really don't do that. I'm sure they would eat it like fire now and nobody's thrown a, a ribbon tail in 10 years feel like um is there anything else you do on a jigwear besides a stick bait um no not not really um no that's pretty much it for me yeah yeah i i i know we when we started out we were always throwing the um four inch power worm that little smaller one and then there was it's almost like a it's almost like a, a ringworm without the rings on it yeah, there there is another brand out there that was almost exactly like it too. It started with a K, and they're not around anymore. No, yeah, I don't remember. But but anyway, yeah, there's there's been a few, but day in day out, it's it's the stick worm. When I started first in the jug worm, <coughs> jig worm, we were throwing like those great productos. Oh yeah, producto that was like the jig worm. Okay. Which, honestly, thinking now, that is literally almost a stick worm. Right. <laughs> um, so it all comes to cycles. I think it's like, you know, probably now that everybody and their brother on Taka pretty much throws a stick bait on a jig worm, it's probably time to whip out the uh, the power worm or the culprit. You'll probably, like, kill them because all those fish will think it's, like, the new fire thing. So Yeah, it's got a little bit of extra action to it, for sure. Um, okay. 
So what else, Largy? Anything else? Nikos? Any other sneaky? We didn't really talk about swim baits for either species. Oh yeah, I kind of forgot about swim baits on my smallmouth list. Um, so yeah, that's that's a big one for me. I like the Keytech um, three point three or the three point eight, um, yep. and then also the Arsenal Tactical Swimmer. And I'd say that even if I wasn't sponsored by them, because that is just a phenomenal little smallmouth bait. Um, it's got a, a smaller boot tail on it. Um, I think I have one here. I don't think I have the smaller ones with me. I took them off. So back to high tech impact. Are you throwing the fat impact or the regular swing impacts? Um. So on the on the Kitex, I, I usually throw the, the fat ones uh, if I'm throwing it on a jig head. Um, if I'm dragging it, I'm throwing those easy shiners or those regular. So the regular swing or the easy shiner for a drop shot, but on a jig head, you're throwing fat. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And then, and then uh, I like just a eighth ounce ball head jig. Um, keep it pretty simple on the, the jig head itself. Um, the the shape of like the golden eye um, swim bait head intri- intrigues me for fishing around rocks. I could see like when we were talking about that scenario in the um, like those calm slick conditions where they get up on top of something throwing like um, a jig head like that could be pretty productive. But for the most part, I'm sticking with that ball head jig for my smallmouth stuff. See, I like, I have this 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 bass tech head, uh, which is kind of a hybrid football ball head, mm-hmm. and I literally use this for jig worms. I use this for menace scrubs. I use this for swim baits. I use it for stupid tubes. Um, so yeah, this is a very versatile tube head for me that gets a lot of work, and I don't tend to carry a ton of like I don't carry swim like this. Fine, does a nice all-purpose head that like it does just about everything I need for all those applications in that kind of that category so yeah i can see that for sure um that reminds me i i will be remiss to leave off the tube of my smallmouth <laughs> list um i i threw the tube that's uh that's kind of what helped me do well in the state tournament a couple of years ago on uh Pekagama. i basically mm-hmm. ex- exclusively caught my weight on a tube i threw a net around a little bit too and didn't end up weighing any of the fish I caught on it. But and, I feel like it gives me... Just for the record, who did you pull in behind and catch those fish on a tube again? <laughs> uh, Bankston. Yeah. I'm make sure we've got that out there. <laughs> Shout out who to Brian Bankston. Stupid tube nut, and he didn't throw the stupid tube on that spot. And then you <laughs> pulled behind him and caught them on a... On a tube, yeah. 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 So actually I, I didn't, I didn't catch most of my weight there. I, I had a, I had a key fish on that kind of clued me into how sure. to catch them um, in that area that he and I share. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So, so I, I like a three sixteenths ounce head most of the time. Um, I'm, I'll maybe go up to uh, a quarter or three eighths ounce if I'm trying to get a reaction bite out of them. But I really like the the tube bait because you can. I mean, it's a finesse tactic that looks like a jig. Basically, it's got the profile of a big bait. And, um, and are you to, mostly exposed, or do you rig it any? Uh, I haven't built confidence in the stupid rigging yet. I've seen it work 
firsthand um, with Aaron Daggies out in the boat one day. Shout out to Aaron. But uh, yeah, for me, it's exposed. Okay. Um, and if Aaron can catch them, you know it's good. <laughs> right. Um, so anyway, I digress, but I feel uh, I had to put that in on the smallmouth side. But It's like we didn't script this and we didn't have a strict agenda to go through. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Like, uh, like uh, the year that we all in my club, so Aaron, Corey, myself, and then Banger just missed on Vermillion. We were all catching them on a stupid jig rig in that tournament. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 got a it's got an interesting action to it. Um, I feel like it moves through the water differently and bounces mm-hmm. off the of rocks differently. Is, is there Absolutely. anything else that you like about it? I mean, besides uh, not getting hung up. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's. I like it because it doesn't get hung up as easy. Um, I like these heads actually. It's like stuffing these in there because they have that little bit of football head. So I feel like that. At least in my head, makes the tube head a little wider, so I feel like it rolls over and crawls over stuff a little better. Um, I think, yeah. And then there's just a little bit different glide to it. It's not quite the sharp spin of a of an exposed head. It's a little more of a glide. So it just I think it shows the fish something a little different. Um, and for any of you guys that don't know what the stupid tube rig is, I did a, a video on it this summer. So go ahead and just check out my channel, search stupid tube. I got a pretty good video showing how that works. So. Um, I don't find if you get the right hook, like I have this jig head that has uh, a pretty good hook in it um, for stupid tubes. I really think if you have the right hook, you want tubes that are a little bit thinner walled tubes. Um, You don't want a real thick walled tube. That's where you can kind of get in trouble. Um, And then I like that. And then there's another hook from, uh, I think it's V and M that makes this extra wide gap, like tube style hook. So that can be used internally, but it also makes an unbelievable stupid tube hook. So you want, you got to find the right style tube hooks that have a little bit bigger gap on them and you need thinner wall tubes. And that's kind of the key to rigging a stupid tube to not miss a bunch of fish. So hope that helps you. White whale. And I guess with spinning gear, yeah. Actually, most of the time I am rigging a stupid tube on a seven foot three or seven foot four three power Dobbins bait casting rod with 10 pound line, sometimes 12 pound line. Um, so, yeah, that definitely helps. Uh, yeah, if you're fishing a medium light rod with eight pound line, you're probably going to have a tough time sticking fish with a stupid tube. Um, if you're fishing braid to floral, you probably got a better shot, but I probably would still bump up to a 10 pound uh, on a spinning rod uh, leader. So, uh, yeah, definitely beef up your gear just a tad um, because typically if you're fishing a stupid tube, you're probably fishing around slightly snaggier rocks. There's probably some wood in the water. There's grass. There's stuff going on. Um, if you're fishing complete sand and gravel, I'm going to probably throw an exposed tube more often. Um, the other thing nice is a stupid tube like gives you a little more versatility uh, if you're on a lake that's like largey. I mean, large, it's a good largey bait as well. Um, and so – you can skip it on docks. You can throw it in the laydowns. You can fish it out deep. You can fish it in the grass. It just, especially if you're kind of like mixed bag, maybe you're not quite dialed in. It allows you to have one rod that maybe lets you cover a little more scenarios uh, and give you more flexibility. So it's definitely a great rod for like a co-angler. Uh, stupid tube is a, is a really good weapon. Um, which brand tube do you like on that? Actually, so like the old Yum Tubes, I don't know if they still make those. Those were really good because those were kind of thin. 
Um, honestly, I've got a bunch in a bag, and I honestly don't know where they came from. So I kind of kind of thing where I got to get some, and then like, okay, these are good, and then I just buy like a hundred of them and, uh, and go with it. So, um, so yeah, that's that's my two cents on the stupid tune. Um, so uh, yeah, anything back to so. You, anything else you want to cover? Largemouth wise, Nico rigs, secrets you're going to spill the beans I don't even know about? Like what <laughs> yeah, um, Nico rigs I've been messing around with a little bit. Uh, definitely not an expert on it, but I do like it for those highly pressured bass for sure. Um, so I'm going back to this Zoom trick worm for it most of the time. Daiwa makes a nice uh, Nico worm specifically for it that uh mutual friend dan introduced us to last spring um yep that's the one co-op between Daiwa and yamamoto right yeah things in my bag for somebody that doesn't fish the nest though <laughs> and um kind of almost a senko but it's got kind of a little bit like a slim senko cross senko with a little bit of a bulb tail i don't know so yeah yeah, it just it's it seems to it seems to have an action that's real natural. Nail weight down there, and then hook it somewhere in the middle or a little above, and then this thing's gonna kind of flop around when you're dragging it, right? That how yep. You- yep, that's right. And then um, the other thing that it does is when you lift it up, it, if you have the hook coming out going away from um, basically the the body of the worm, it's going to pull just about backwards when you're, when you bounce it up. And there's something about that, that I think like you you get a following fish and it goes back towards them. They're, they're just going to have to hit it. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I had dabbled with the Nico rig a little bit coming into April last year. And uh, I played around with a little bit in practice one day, shallow. I started getting a bunch of bites and I was like, huh, oh, all right. And I, uh, I was actually fishing on like 12 pound line on a bait caster. <laughs> and so I had a terrible first day of the tournament. And the second day of the tournament, uh, in Gunnersville, uh, caught a couple decent fish out deep. Uh, and then I went into this pocket where I'd gotten some bites with, uh, Zach in practice. And the guy in my back of the boat was throwing just a wacky rig, Senko or stick bait. And I was throwing around this Nico rig. And I think I outfished him eight to one in that pocket. And I caught one almost seven pounds and another one that was three or four pounds and filled out my limit and then had to throw some back and then caught a bunch of shorts. And he literally caught like one short. Um, wow. There is something to this. Like um, I think there are times that this is unique and like, especially I think, so many people throw Senkos and throw wacky rigs now. Like it's like a crutch for so many people and so many new fishermen's like first foray into fishing that I think this is a nice differentiator to give them a similar offering. That's different enough that will trigger fish. Sometimes it will literally crush a bait. Like they've never seen it before. Uh, which is like, we went through a pocket. I'm pretty sure we weren't the first ones to go through there that day. I mean, we're on Gunnersville and I was like two miles from the ramp. Um, and like they were just, and then you have to like sit, sit there, like it, like threw it in there and like pick it up once and like 
like they were just so yeah i mean there are times when it, it's the deal like uh and it's something that you can power fish and finesse at the same time like you can beef this up a little bit and go with like a 332nd ounce weight instead of like a 16 and you can throw it on a bait casting gear and so there you know if you if you don't love spinning rods but you still want something finessey you can kind of this nico rig is definitely a, a gateway drug for you to help you get into finesse fishing <laughs> When when you beef it up, are you using a weedless wacky uh, hook? Sometimes depends on the cover. Yeah, some throwing a, uh, a number two BMC Nico or a Titan X Mustad, uh, and yeah, I mean if I'm fishing shallow around docks and wood and that kind of stuff, I definitely will go uh, with the weedless version. Um, and I guess the other key is like make sure you get yourself some of those arsenal bands to put on there because that's going to make your your uh, I got a whole box of them like like I got as you can see that but like oh, it makes life way easier of the Nico bands um, which are just these little silicone surgical tubing bands um, and I run my hook right through that and so that does especially with the Nico rig because like. That extra weight on the bottom of that worm makes that thing want to fly off, uh, especially on a softer like a, a Senko, or like these are pretty darn soft. So, uh, and these are not cheap. So, uh, that band is going to save you a ton of money in worms and weights and time re rigging um, for that. Um, so, I will use that weedless. Um, you see my labels? I got a label maker, Kent, just because of you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gotta love it. Yeah, the, the brother. Yeah. Um, side That's note. Good stuff. Uh, uh, but yeah, so that, yeah, so if I'm fishing more grass or weed lines, I'll tend to go with just the regular one um, or sand or whatever. But yeah, if I'm fishing around cover, um, so if I think I'm more pitching and not skipping, I'll go with a little bit heavier weight, like a 332nd ounce. Um, if I want to try to skip it, I'm probably gonna go with real light, like a sixteenth or a thirty-second ounce weight, because that it's so much harder to skip um, uh, with a that tail weight kills the skippability if you go with a heavy one. So um, it all depends on what I'm doing uh, and what. Like, it's great for pitching in holes in the grass, like if you're covering a flat post spawn. Uh, you know, if they're kind of spooky, but you know they're in there inside weed lines and that type of stuff. So. It's a really versatile bait, and you can really play around with the worm and the size of the weight and the hook, and uh, it's pretty versatile. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I was gonna, I was gonna mention the holes in the grass too. That's where I've had a lot of really good success with it. Is is with that application, and then uh, sea walls as well. It seems to be a good bait on sea walls where the fishes, like you said, have seen a hundred uh, wacky rig senkos and jigs and everything else. Um, Seems to be a good, a good uh, alternative. Yeah. So White Whale says he uses a, a one-out worm hook and then kind of rigs it on the top with the O-ring, and that definitely works too. That's kind of what I did with this uh, Daniki uh, that I showed earlier, but I use that clear tube, um, and I just think those tubes, regardless of how you're rigging it, that actually got these tubes are a lot more versatile than just using them as a wacky band. Mm-hmm. Uh, video pretty soon like there's a lot of great ways to save plastics with those uh those tubes so keep out for those but use your imagination a little bit um and there's there's some unique ways to use that uh that tube 
Oh, anything else? I guess what I mean. So you're the dial worms and the trick worms. That's your main two main for the the Nico rig. Yeah, for the Nico rig, that's basically what I've been doing. Um, if I want a little bit bigger profile, I've gone with the Magnum trick worm, um, which, which is a beast of a pl- piece of plastic. <laughs> But yeah. uh, it's almost like a 10-inch worm without the ribbon tail on it. It's kind of how right. I look at it. But Are you up the weight or the hook size or anything when you go with that big? I I haven't. I don't know if you really you maybe are supposed to, but I guess the way I've tried it, I haven't. Um, sure. Still catch fish on it. So. Nice. Yeah. All right. So what else are you holding out? What else are we we're going. We're ninety minutes in, and we haven't talked about sonar. So maybe we should talk about how the. Yeah. So, yeah. So the way this all kind of fits into my my process is, um, I do a lot of scanning on all the lakes that I go to, and um, I'll run side scan and basically pick a part of the lake to cover and just go back and forth and mow the lawn until I find something that's a little bit different. Uh-huh. And, and um, you know, a prime example is isolated vegetation. So if you find a clump of grass somewhere and it's during the summer or post-spawn or even pre-spawn in some places, that isolated little clump, clump of grass is probably going to have fish in it. Uh, it. If it's close to a weed bed, even better. Um, if you see bait around it, that's even better still. Um, if it's got a hard bottom near it, that's another thing that I look for. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm marking every single one of these little nuances or little subtle um, isolated pieces of cover that I come across. And and you said weed clumps mostly, like up here or in general? Yeah, up, up here it's going to be weed clumps and rock piles and boulders and occasionally logs or if somebody happened to put brush in a a place around here Um, once i get down south i'm looking for brush piles a lot more um, on lake hartwell there's tons of brush piles and uh, what they call cane piles um, which is kind of the same thing Um, but basically just any 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 piece of isolated cover and then um, dropping a waypoint on it. Um, one little tip I've found for fishing this way is when you go over a piece of cover like that, um, you mark it on your side scan. You can tap right on the screen and mark that little whatever it is, isolated cover, mark it, and then drive back over it and try and go right over it. And a lot of times you'll get a more accurate mark if you mark it on your your down sonar versus your side scan. And that's just because side scan is trying to do a calculation of how far away it is from the boat. And uh, yeah. there's a lot more, a lot more guesswork, I guess, than shooting straight down with a 2d transducer. Um, so is so there I, anything like you do that with all your marks or only if it's like extra juicy looking or like, is there a rule for you? Like when you will double scan it versus a single scan or the size of it? Like, um so like a, a car are you going to rescan it or <laughs> it i guess it kind of depends um 
Like even even the big boulders on Malax, like the great big ones, I've found it helpful to to go back over them and and remark them. Um, it's a little bit tedious, but it can really pay off because then you're not wasting time. Um, one thing that's helping me avoid having to do that now is the use of forward-looking sonar. And that's kind of the, the thing that I'm really excited about is um, I have both the Lowrance Live Site and the Garmin Live Scope uh, on my trolley motor right now. I'm kind of comparing the two and deciding which one I like better. Um, the the Lowrance Live Site seems to be better for finding those isolated pieces of cover once you get near them. Um, the live scope gives you 10 times better detail once you actually find it. Uh, so what I think that, detail, like the cover, the fish, like what the bait, like what, what, what's details to you? Yeah. So all those things, it, it's going to be like going from 2005 side scan to uh, hummingbird mega basically like all those little um uh i guess like on on a rock um you can see a fish hiding behind it kind of thing and the live site might just show a blob and the live scope is gonna you actually see the fish um on the rock so things like that. Uh, I guess blobby is the way I would describe the live site a little bit. So, so what is like, again? What is better about the live site, or what does that help you, or why? Like, is it a different field? It, like, what? Yeah, it's got a little bit wider cone angle that it shoots. Yeah. Um, so, if you're just fishing along, you might notice more things um, that that you maybe wouldn't pick up on with a live scope is the way I look at it. Cause instead of like shooting this narrow, you're shooting a little bit wider. So in that, in that is mostly you're seeing like wheat patches and structure, or you think you're actually seeing more fish with the wider cone? I'm seeing more fish with a live scope for sure. Um, but I've also heard that the live site is not great at picking up fish. Would you agree? I would totally agree. And it's also not as good at picking up your lure either. It's capable, and it's uh, like I don't want to make it sound bad because it's extremely useful. I used it, um, I used it almost exclusively at the Kissimmee chain. I didn't have a scope on my boat, so I used it to catch almost every single fish I caught. And I used it at Oneida with smallmouth, and yeah, I mean it's been it's been an amazing tool. Sure. Um, get more detail with the live scope. So if you, I guess what I'm trying to say, if you're a Lowrance user uh, already and you like Lowrance and you don't really have any desire to buy a new unit, like get the live site for sure. But um, but if you if you need a second unit and you want to have that additional detail, the live scope I think has an upper hand on that. Sure. Do you think there's much advantage to having a second unit? outside of the live scope do you feel like that having the live site with it or would like 360 with the live scope be like even better because you'd be like like you could like you would get on steroids to what you're saying you're picking up a live site with 360 and then you could be like okay i see it now i'm gonna like stare at it with my live scope and that yeah for sure um i haven't messed around with uh uh, 360 as as much or actually hardly at all um, but it seems like an extremely useful tool it, it seems like basically you can do your 
side scanning without having to move the boat um, out in front of it. What you don't get is a look at your lure falling or how, how, how a fish is going to react to the bait that you're throwing at them, that type of no, thing. I was just thinking like having the 360 going while you're fishing along to help you pick up. That could not looking and then what, like what is that and then like turn your live scope on it and be like okay let's let's dissect it like, i'm pretty sure jacob wheeler is using that setup yeah. right now and he's having some success for it i think he actually mentioned in his write-up after uh the toyota series that he just won that that was one of the factors that helped him win was having that combination of units um i think the 360 is actually broke right now but yeah i do think he does that but yeah um, <laughs> yeah, the only concern is interference, which I have heard it can be a little bit of a problem. But if you can get all if you can get all that technology to work, I mean, you you know exactly what's going on all the way around your boat. That's right. Are you running Lawrence side scan at the council? Yep. Yeah. So I I've been a Lawrence person for a long time. Um, I've always kind of had that as as my side scan and two D sonar and. Um, I like everything about the user interface just as a preference more than anything. I think it's, I think they're all great units. Um, just depends on what you like. Um, but uh, so now I've got a nine inch uh, uh, Garmin unit up on, on the bow. And that's, that's what I'm running my live scope to. And to answer your question, yes, I think you definitely do need two units um, trying to use a, small forward-looking sonar screen just doesn't work or, or, or a split screen it it you, you can't see enough of what you need to be able to see and it's not like it's not like 2d or even side scan there's a lot more subtleties that you can mm -hmm. pick up on um that you that you really need that screen size for do you wish you had gotten bigger than a nine inch yeah yeah, I, I've actually, I'm already kind of hoping to get something bigger. Like, you got to try to cash a check at the Oklahoma or the Arkansas River and then parlay that into a 12 inch garment. Yeah, it's always something. Yeah, it, it, it was just a good um, entry level unit. I got the 93 SV and it's certainly capable. It's, it's helped put um, tons of fish in the boat for me already this spring. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just, super excited about it yeah the, the 93 sv is definitely a good beginner unit but certainly we'll be hoping to upgrade in size at some point so kevin asks any feedback on the perspective view from your garmin i haven't tried it i don't know it it doesn't it looks more like what 360 kind of offers but also still live image at the same time um i guess what I would miss from that perspective view is that it's not going to show you any of the water column. So it's basically just kind of a flat view of what's in front of you instead of uh, a water column view in front of you. It's better for shallow water, I think, right? That's the way it looks. Yeah. 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 It might be better for um, somebody that's doing a lot more cranking or a swim bait or somebody that's more of a power fisherman. But kind of with my my process of target casting, um, I want to be extremely efficient in that process. And so um, I think being able to see the water column is definitely part of the equation for me. Did you have live sight on Island Lake last year? 
I wish I would have. Okay. Um, I did not have it in time for that one, unfortunately. I know, I know it would have put a lot I more either, fish. So I'm just asking for a friend. So. <laughs> I know it would have put a lot more fish in the boat for me because I, I did catch a lot of my fish dropping on them. And even like, I think we talked off air about catching drop fish in eight feet of water. Like that was kind of my thing on Island Lake was whenever I happened to see one pop in on the sonar, if I could bang him in the head with something, then I could get bit. But otherwise uh, it was kind of a grind. A lot more fish. You only needed like a couple of fish. I know. <laughs> I know. I just needed to get my limit on day two. I would have been good. I just needed a fourth one on day two. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you only had three on day two. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's um, that's that was a tough experience for sure. It wasn't any easier than the last time we were there. Were you not throwing your fluke rig on island? Um, I didn't. I didn't throw it. No. No. I, that's I would, one of the deals for some people. So the fluke. Huh. I think they were fishing on those shallow weed edges. Yeah. Is that what you were using, or is that what you're indicating, or no? No, I just like Jay Swanson and a couple of those other guys, and a few other people did really well on it. They were throwing them on the inside edges or outside. Exactly. But oh, well, um, yeah, interesting place. <laughs> I like. You liked it. I would liked it more if I would have gotten uh, a fourth, a fourth one. <clears throat> I think I caught, I caught six keepers the first day and three the second day. So, yeah, yeah, it was tough. Um, I was I was dropping a tube on my smallmouth, which is um, something I didn't mention before, but I, I will do that for sure. Uh, it seems to be a good uh, drop bait as well, in addition to the drop shot. Like a regular tube or a baby tube? A uh, regular tube, yeah, four inch. Yeah. So, is there anything specific? So, the forward, say, forward facing sonar, you believe really deadly when combined with the pre scanning of specific offshore targets? Yeah, for sure. So, it, it, um, so your waypoint gets you close, and then the forward looking sonar gets you the exact cast. So, basically, what I'm doing is line lining up um with that isolated piece of cover i'm using the range rings on my uh waypoint on my chart to give me an idea how far away i am and you kind of get a feel for what a 30 foot cast feels like compared to 50 foot cast and um you, you, you lose visibility once you're past like 70 feet on any of the forward looking sonar um live site might actually have a little bit of a hand up on that one uh i haven't played around in very deep water yet this this year it's mostly been on, been on shallow flats less than 10 feet um but anyway so so it, the waypoint gets you close the um forward looking sonar gets you the exact cast for sure so do you like even with so with the live site do you feel like there's still benefit in doing the double scan since you're going to be right there with the live anyways or do you think that's with the, the live sonar the double scan is less important 
So I'll give you an example of uh, smallmouth fishing right now. Smallmouth are really close to very small rocks on my lake at the moment. Yeah. And, and um, in that situation, I think it definitely helps. If your piece of cover, I say, I would say is less than two feet in diameter, whether it's a brush pile that's tiny or a little rock or whatever it is, then I, then I think that double scan process is helpful still. Uh, and then do you, I guess, any scenarios where like forward facing live sonar has helped you like see the fish react to your bait or I guess the pros of it, like you can see your bait, you can see your fish, you can see there's fish there. So like you stick with it. And on the contrary, is there any times where you see fish and then you just sit there almost like it's a bed fish and try to catch it and it doesn't work out, but it actually costs you time. Um, well, since you brought it up, uh, it does work extremely well for bed fish. So no, I'm thinking about like, this just, before we talk about bed fishing, like just say you find a, a small pile of rocks, you find the lay down, whatever, being able to see the fish in your lure, right? Like will you stay there longer if you can see the fish or you can see that they are interested in your bait? Yeah, hundred percent. I think it happens more for me with uh, smallmouth because because they seem to be swimming around. And maybe it's because they're around rocks and harder cover and boulders and stuff like that. You can pick them out easier than a largemouth ambush predator is going to be. You know, buried into those weeds more, or buried into that brush pile more. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like on Malax, if I'm fishing a boulder. I can see how that fish reacts to my bait. Sometimes they swim off. And if I don't, if I don't see a fish around the boulder anymore, I'll maybe boogie and go hit my next boulder and then come back to it um, later in the day or something. And then would you like come back maybe with a different or different color or give them something like, well, that, 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 uh, that Kitek didn't do the trick. So maybe I'll show them a baby tube this time or anything like that or. Yeah, I mess around with that. Um, I think for me, it's more of the angle, so I'll try a different angle on them, and sure. a lot, of, a lot of times that that can get them to go. So I mean, like a lot of times, like you'll see a fish that kind of seems like it's reacting to your bait, but obviously isn't biting it. Yep. That will cause you to stay there or keep fishing for it from a different angle or a different bait, and allow you to convert it. You think? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like crazy how good it works. And then I guess on the flip side, what I was saying, is there any scenario where you found yourself where you can see two or three fish down there and you keep fishing for them, keep fishing for them because you see them and they just never bite? Yeah, it happened. It, that happens with, um, um, I had that happen a lot on Hartwell with spotted bass. Um, and yeah, if, if they weren't, I guess it's so situational that, you know, you got to kind of feel it out through the, through right. the day or through practice or whatever, but I got used to if they weren't going to bite it after the first couple of casts, like they just weren't going to do it for whatever reason. I don't, I don't know why. Um, I'd try different stuff and there it seemed like they get really, really fired up on your first couple throws. And then after that you could keep casting at them. And if you didn't get one to bite on those first couple throws and the other ones just, they weren't, nobody was going to go after it for me. 
interesting. So I think it's it, it almost to some degree is like bed fishing. You gotta like know when to know, know when to stick with it, know when to like bail on those fish, even though you can see them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely see their behavior, kind of like bed fishing too. Like you, you kind of get you kind of get a feel for um, their mood, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, it it you learn a lot for sure. Owen P says tips on Lake Marion. Um, go to a different lake. <laughs> no, honestly, to me, I think right now on Marion, uh, once we get into the summer pattern, there's really like two ways to catch fish on Marion that are consistently productive. One is to flip the milfoil in the grass uh, like you would on other lakes. And two, like finesse, jig worm, drop shot, Nico rig on those deeper water, hard bottom transitions that need the grass. That's basically the only two ways to consistently catch them out there. No docks. I've never been on it. They, they don't really like, there's too much pressure. They don't really relate to docks anymore. I mean, you catch them occasionally, but consistently they're not, they just don't use them. Or if they do, they're so conditioned, they don't bite anymore. Hmm. And not by me. Cause I hate that one. So. Um, cool. Well, I think, I don't know anything else to, to, to touch on. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like, like if you were going to make, if somebody asked you like what live forward facing to buy, you'd say Garmin. I'd say Garmin. Yeah. Just cause I can pick my bait up, uh, from a lot further away. So then I know that I'm hitting my mark and that's, that's the whole process for me is just efficiency. Can you see fish under docks with live skill? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I, I think um, it shines in four feet of water and deeper. So um, if you're fishing really shallow docks, you might pick them up. You might not. But, yeah, you can certainly see fish. I mean, do you, do you see, like, the bait fish and the bluegills? Or is, like, they're easy to tell? I mean, like, the size of the blobs is easy to pick out for a a game fish from a, a bait fish or uh i'm still learning the size of the blobs i'd say but um just kind of watching fish on beds i can see perch come in on a smallmouth bed and i can see the i can see the difference in size of those but yeah. would i so, be able to tell a crappie from a bass i don't know maybe maybe not sure so Owen's asking a question here and follow up question while he while, while I ask Kent to chime in. Do you have side imaging? Um, <laughs> uh, but you're you're a little more uh, versed in electronics than I am. So Owen says he's specifically talking about Marion, but I don't think that uh, this this applies to any of our lakes. How do you find that charge? It transitions because he's got a tournament coming in July. How would you yeah. how would you talk him through how to find those transition areas around the grass uh, using I guess like side scan or 2D. Yeah. So with side scan, what I'm looking for is going to be like a lighter color to the bottom, uh, pretty much using any type of whatever type of electronics that you have. Uh, anything that's going to shine up brighter, you can think of that as gonna, as harder bottom. Um, so if it's going from a dark color on the bottom to a lighter color, that's going to be, your mud line to hard bottom transition. And then um, 
I guess the other things that I look for is like gravel to sand transitions and you'll just pick up, um, uh, I guess more black spots on your hard bottom when there's gra uh, gravel because it, it's casting a little bit of a shadow. A little more salt and pepper. <laughs> yeah, a little more salt and pepper, yep. And then on uh, sand, it's just going to be straight um, light color. Yeah. So any tips for like where, like how would you set, like how far are you looking left to right? How far are you scanning out from the grass. So like, like you'd say the, uh, the, the, the grass line is at 10 to 12 feet and like how far off would you put your boat, try to keep your boat when you're scanning and like how far are you looking? Uh, like what kind of set settings would you use on a structure scan or a, a side imaging? Um, in this situation that he's referring to, uh, I don't know, Marion, but I'm thinking the weed line's probably in at least eight feet of water. So he's going to yeah, be more like 12. Yep. If you're outside weed line in that deep of water, I don't see any reason why you couldn't have a hundred feet out on either side um, with any of the side scan units out there. The Lawrence lives seem to have a really wide range. So if you happen to have those units, you might be able to go to 150 feet, but I don't typically go any further than 150 feet. And like if how, I was, how far off do you stay from the grass when you're trying to, look for those clumps in transition with your side scan. Um, I try and max out that uh, 100 to 150 foot range. You're gonna stay a good chunk. So if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're set to 70, you're gonna try to stay 60 feet away. If you're 100 feet, you're gonna try to stay 90, 80 feet away. Yeah, so I like to keep the weed, I, I try and keep the weed line within scope so that I can right. still see it. And um, yeah, I guess just depending on the depth. Um, yeah, it, it, that really dictates how far away I'll stay. But yeah, as long as I can still see that weed line, anything outside of it that sticks out um, is going to be uh, my target. Right. So then you're going to look like so there. You, you can do two things, right? You can be looking for the, the bright spots that show up on the outside edges. A little. So this Marion doesn't really have rock. Like it's got a few rough spots in it. Like there's it's it's not like Malax where you're actually going to see like piles of rocks or like Minnetonka or a lot of lakes where there's actually pop. Marion has like a little bit of gravel, a little bit of light rock. Like it's very subtle stuff. Um, so I was very disappointed when I first got side imaging. I was like, I'm going to go to Marion. I'm going to find all these deep spots. And I'm like, is this thing set up right? I don't see anything. <laughs> it was just all very subtle stuff. And then I had to go to a different, like, no, oh, it does work. I guess it just, there's not much out there. Um, but so there's two things you're looking for those, like, like little white circles and like little, little high spots, little drops, and, like, where you're looking for, like, differences and see the color changes, right? And then also what Kent was talking about earlier, you're looking for those, like, weed clumps that, like, jump out at you or make little points or, like, uh, sometimes give you depressions in it, but you're looking for those irregularities on that weed line uh, that you can then drop away mark and then, like, fish those, you know, specifically as well. And if you have the opportunity to get out there now and look for them, it's going to give you a, a big head up on going out there. Um, now versus later in the year when the weeds grow up for sure yeah so like finding the transition areas and the hard spots easier to find now um but you're still going to want to scan or rescan closer to the tournament if you want to find those isolated weed clumps that are popping up out there because those are probably not going to show up real well right now exactly and then i guess let's assume that owen doesn't have any kind of side imaging uh 
traditional 2D sonar, you can still find some of this stuff. Yeah. Maybe talk about what you're looking for on a 2D. Yeah, so on 2D, um, on, on I think most um, color combinations, it's going to be like a really bright yellow bottom is going to be your hard bottom. And the tighter the band gets, the, the harder the bottom is. Um, so if it's a, a real wide, uh, like darker orange or red bottom, that's a lot of times going to be a softer bottom. If it tightens up and it's a real small line, uh, that's that's going to be your hard bottom areas. Sometimes you'll see a second line below it, which is a double echo, which is another sign that you found a, a harder bottom. Yeah, so if, if you only have 2D, that'd be something I would do is set your your depth range to at least twice, uh, probably a little, little bit more than twice. And ten feet, set it to twenty-five or thirty, so that if you pick up that double echo, that's a dead giveaway that you found some hard bottom. Yeah, and you can, I mean, you can set your graphs to be so sensitive that you'll pick up a double echo and muck too. But if you um, kind of tone that down so that, say, you know where some muck is, um, you don't want it to read a double echo there, and then when you go. Uh, when you do happen to go over somewhere harder, you, you'll get that double echo, and that'll be your giveaway. So he says he's got an Echo Map 7SV, and his partner has a Helix 7. I don't know what an Echo Map is, but does that have side capabilities? It it has side capabilities. Hard to say. Just, if oh, yeah, it's than that. yeah, yeah. So, those are both good units. Yeah, I mean, just uh, is one better than the other? I mean. Both are going to do what you need them to do. Like uh, I think a lot of people say that, uh, like side imaging is where hummingbird shines. Not saying that the other ones aren't good, but most people say that like that's their probably their strongest attribute. Um, but I think the Garmin is solid. I mean, it's not. They're both. Trust me, they're they're both going to find the stuff on uh, Marion. Marion's nothing special. Um, <laughs> uh, so one guy says, like he says, uh, somebody tell me about this. Uh, milf oil that keep hearing about um i don't know it's a we have two types of milk oil. we have northern milk oil and eurasian milk oil in minnesota uh, it does cover most of the northern half of the country uh, that i'm aware of it's got in the mississippi river in your travels where else have you seen milk oil um how far south have you seen milk oil um i found it have a little bit of milk oil in it I think Gunnersville's got some, yep. Um, Aren't you flipping milfoil in Gunnersville? Yeah, it does have a little bit of milfoil. <laughs> you you Matt Heron, your boy? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it turns out we have a spot in common. Um, but, yeah, so it, it's got it. Chickamauga's got it. So I guess the Tennessee River Lakes have yeah. it. Um, can't think of anywhere else that I've been where I've seen it in the south. Like the northeast, you've seen it like Oneida or Champlain. I mean, Champlain, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so the Northeast, yeah, anywhere, anywhere in the North Country, basically. From I Wisconsin, up. I assume it's in Michigan. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I guess it's just a, it's a leafy. It's got kind of a, usually like a, a red stem. It's got leafy kind of, I don't know, um, and it grows fairly thick. It grows up and it kind of canopies over, right? Yep. Uh, the attractive part for bass, I think, a lot of times is that it comes up in stocks and then tends to canopy over, creating like little caverns and canals that, uh, and so fish will relate to the edges of it, and they will also get in the clumps in those caverns, and there's a lot of times those caverns happen over hard spots and shell beds and 
logs and things like that. And that's uh, why flipping milfoil is typically the really the, one of the better ways to fish it. Anything to add to that, Ken? Um, I guess one thing I will add is when I was on Chickamauga and I found milfoil, that was just like here. If you can find good green milfoil in Minnesota, it's it's going to have the better population of fish and a lot of times a bigger fish. Yeah, that's, I would say if, if milfoil does grow on your lake or in your region, uh, and especially if you can find it where it mixes in with other grass or butts up to grass or touches anything like a bottom transition or some hard spots or anything, it's usually, the only thing up here in Minnesota, we have so much milfoil that you typically have to find like the best milfoil or you've got to find something special in the milfoil. But right. Don't have a lot of milfoil. If you just find the milfoil, that's the juice. I think a lot of times. Yeah. Yep. For sure. It's still got to be green. Like on Minnetonka, you get you get you. Uh, my experience, anyway. I, I'll find milfoil that I don't think is all that great next to coontail. That's really great, and it's just the difference between how green the vegetation is, and it yeah. all has to do with giving off the oxygen and yeah. so that's just like when you find, you know, cabbage that meets up to the pads or you find, you know, <laughs> just anytime two good things come together, they're typically even better. Yeah. So Kyle says, once you've found the area you're going to fish, do you keep your electronics on it and you shut them off? Um, if I'm fishing shallow, I will sometimes, and I feel like it's pressured, I will shut sometimes electronics off occasionally. I don't do it a lot, but I will sometimes. Um, I know a lot of the, the newer graphs have a, a pause feature shut up dog um <laughs> so it's something to play around with i don't think there's a hard fast rule uh i think if i'm fishing deeper than if i'm fishing with my electronics no i mean like all the stuff that ken's talking about i'm pretty sure he never shuts his electronics off maybe you'll shut your or pause your rear one off if you don't want the guy in the back of the boat to see what's going on but that's more defensive than it is not to fish i would imagine yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty much running mine all the time, and that's one of the that's one of the the things that I like about my process. The whole um, stay, is staying away from the target uh, as far as you can. So I'm at least thirty feet away. I'm not too worried about my sonar pinging right below the boat. So I mean, yeah, if, if you're flipping stumps, if you're flipping a grass edge where you're like literally visually flipping it. Um, if you're fishing docks, banks, uh, definitely experiment with shutting off your electronics on pressured lakes. There's nothing, there's no downside to that other than like if it starts the end of the day and you need to see the clock on your uh, electronics to make sure you're not late. But Yeah, and you can leave your chart on a lot of times too. Just make sure that you've got all your um, all your different types of sonar readings off. So like your, your side scan and your down scan might be a different place that you have to push stop and then 2D and side scan is going to be a, a different place where you stop sonar. But, um, yeah, I, I like to do that, like when I'm fishing shallow in Florida and stuff like that. I'll... Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, if I'm, if I'm punching mats or something like that, it, there's, what? there's no reason to have uh, uh, more noise going on. save a little juice on your batteries. I mean, like the... The uh, the screen's still full power, but I think when you're not pulsing that, it will save a little bit of juice, which is easier on your batteries and stuff. So, yeah, especially if you're in a tournament, and you're running aerators and that kind of stuff. So, um, so Brian says, do you always fish to win the tournament, or if things are tough, you change your mindset to just try to survive. Um, I think it depends on the tournament. Uh, if it's a jackpot tournament, 
I'm more likely just to keep fishing for the win. You know, if it's a series like um, fishing the opens and I'm trying to stay in the points to make the elites, that's probably a different conversation. Right. So I think it's very situational. Um, like in a state tournament or a regional tournament, I'm always going to be shooting to win or to move on. Like I'm not going to worry about just catching a small limit just to look better at the tanks. Um, I'm going to keep fishing for the fish that I think I need to catch. Um, now if it's so tough, like an Island Lake where I thought like literally people weren't catching limits, then yeah, I'm going to do whatever I take. Just, I mean, every bite is so crucial. So it's, it's really situational. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Kent, speaking to you, you got, you took a 20th in Florida. You got three more tournaments in the Easterns. You're going to go to the tournament, probably chase. I mean, like even in practice, if you don't find squat, are you going to lay up and make sure you catch your limit or what's your philosophy on that in an important tournament series where your points matter? Um, if I don't find the squat in practice, I'm probably going to keep practicing on day one until I run into something that makes sense. Uh-huh. Hopefully I find something during that day. Uh, and then I don't know what on day two, if I don't, but, um, most of the time I'll find a way that I uh, am going to try and fish them in practice. For me, it's, um, I, I guess the way I fish, I, I feel like I, I'm always, I'm always catching them. Like I catch fish pretty much all the time. It's not always the winning weight, but I'm able to get a limit most days. Um, I think that's part of the whole finesse fishing and getting bites, uh, that guys that a lot of guys that are, um, uh, maybe not picking up because you're using lighter line and smaller baits and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I guess just the way I fish, um, I, I'm trying to go for points or for angler of the year all the time. I'm not necessarily trying to swing those those big um, win, you know, you know, ways that you win tournaments. I guess that's just not my style. Sure. I'm saying like, so like if, let's say you go to the next East, let's say you're like, let's say you Oneida. Okay. Let's say you're on a punch and bite for a large mill. Mm-hmm. A little bit off the wall up there. It's probably yeah. not what you're looking for. You're probably going to be fishing for a small mill. But let's say you were. And like, let's say like partway through day one, they're like, this doesn't feel like it's going to happen anymore. You're probably going to, resort to some finesse tactics and try to fill the box. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Or let's say on a flipping bite on Tonka and it was a one-off fishers of men tournament that you weren't going to fish the whole season. You're probably more likely to stick with that flipping bite all day. If you really felt like that was the best way to win the tournament. Right. Oh, I mean, so, oh yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so Owen says, uh, if I were to buy a second unit, nine inch screen, what would you recommend? If you've already got a helix seven, I would get a helix nine. <laughs> um, like that's, it's going to do everything you want. I don't think, um, I mean, unless, you know, a helix will run three sixty on the front. If you really felt like you want, I mean, like it's a fairly big investment to go to live sonar, the, whether it's live scope or live site. So, I mean, that is an option on the upfront. Um, See, to me, if you're only going to have two units, you probably aren't going to be in the market for a live. Like, to me, the third, that's almost always a third or a fourth unit when you go to a live port. Wouldn't you agree? Like, um, 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, you want your 2D and all that stuff, so it's hard to split that, whether it's 360 or any of those. It almost requires a second unit at the bow. Yeah. Yeah, if he's going to get a second nine-inch one, I would go with the brand that he's already. We have a Garmin now, so I guess what would you recommend for a, a nine-inch Garmin? That ninety-three SV, if you can still get that. Uh, it was when I bought mine; it was at six hundred dollars. So for a six hundred dollar unit that's capable of doing live scope, which you may want to upgrade to at some point, um, right. I would definitely recommend that. That would give you the SV. option to do it. And then, like, and then you you could turn it on and off, right? You could go, you could have mapping, and then you could like flip on, like, I mean, like, it would not be as seamless, and but it still would be a nice opportunity to be able to grow into that if you wanted to. Yeah, absolutely, and it it's going to come with a side scan transducer for six hundred bucks. So, um, yeah, if you've got Garmin, I would definitely recommend that unit. For yeah, sure. I don't think for your average person mixing units is uh, a good thing. I think you want the connectivity. You want them to be networked. You want the, when you find something with your rear scan, you want to hit the waypoint. You want to show up on the front. Like, so I think for the most part, if you're only going to have two units, they probably should be the same brand and they should be linked. Uh, I agree. Yep. For sure. If you have unlimited funds like Jacob Wheeler and Kent Middlestat, then you can start mixing and matching and having 14 units on your boat. Or if you just need that, uh, if you need that to get by. But I guess so Ken's saying he's not good enough fisherman, so he has to have all those crutches to get by. Is that That's mean? right. Yeah. That's what I mean. Awesome. Well, this is good. Um, we'll probably start wrapping it up here. If anybody has any more questions, we'll probably answer those. So next we're going to talk about, uh, so Kent, open pro, you've been fishing opens now for a couple of years. Yeah, so I started out um, uh, two years ago. I fished as a co-angler. Last year, I fished as a boater uh, in one division, and then this year, I'm fishing as a boater in both divisions. Nice. So you, so you did one year as a co. Yep. One year as a boater on one division, and now you're all in both divisions. Yeah, that's right. And that co-angler experience, I would, I would, I wouldn't do it any other way either. I think it's a great way to get a feel for what the series is like. Um, I guess you can kind of gauge your skill set to your pro skill set. Um, and if you feel like you're way off, maybe keep going as a co-angler. If you feel like you have some of the same skill sets that your pros do, then may, maybe you can step up and do it as a pro. Right. That's what I, I learn a, I'll learn a lot about how tournaments work at that level. And like, you get all that like uncertainty out of the way so that when you go to fish as a pro, you can concentrate on the fishing. You're not trying to think about how is this going to work? What are the meetings like? Like, what is it going to be like fishing with a, a co or a bow? What is it like, how, what do 200 boats really look like on the water? Like there's a lot of things that you can just get behind you and that anxiety and that uncertainty that you one year or even just a couple tournaments, they wouldn't even have to be a full season. If you just went and jumped in one or two uh, as a co, I think that would, alleviate a lot of the noise for you before you went pro uh, in an open or a, or a Toyota series or anything that's, you know, more than a grand or $1,500 per event type thing. Yeah. You nailed it on the head there for sure. And, and then on top of that, it's being away from home and the travel and 
all the all the windshield time and all that. I mean, it's a big commitment. And if I know what works for you, like as a co, right? Like uh, you find out what type do you need a hotel? Can you get by with the tent? Can you sleep in the back of your truck? Uh, are you comfortable making sandwiches? Are you gonna, like? I mean, like what what is your lifestyle going to look like? And like what works? And you learn what. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever you just learn the things that work for you that don't that you don't need to be figuring out when you got eighteen hundred dollars on the line and you're exactly hundred yeah. absolute hammers on their local lakes. So yeah, yeah, but, for sure. Um, so and people can follow you at uh, I think we had it down below. It's uh, Kenny Mitt Fishing, right? Yep, Kenny Mitt Fishing on Facebook and Instagram, and um, I'm trying to do more instructional stuff on YouTube, um, yep. so I'm also Kenny Mitt on there. Almost monthly now, so. <laughs> um, yeah. So in the description when this video and the, the replay comes out, I already have links to his Instagram and his uh, YouTube. I don't think I have his Facebook on there. Um, but, yeah, if you search, search Kenny Mitt, uh, we'll put that link in there. Um, so, yeah, follow him along. He's doing some cool stuff. Uh, he's, you know, he's, uh, kind of learning, uh, about the social. He's, he's probably better at fishing than he is at social. I'll just be upfront with you right now. <laughs> um, uh, just kind of a one question. Any, any problems with a pro or a co stealing the pro spot when he becomes a voter? Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably not in best taste. I think when you're traveling at the open or Toyota series, Toyota series level, that's, that's, it's probably not going to come up. It's probably more of an issue at like a BFL level when a co steals, uh, when he becomes a boater, that's because you're in like a, a weekend series or a BFL, you're going to almost fish the same four or five lakes every single year at the same time. And that's probably where it's a bigger issue and where you're probably going to run into and get like, you know, potentially get reamed out if you show up and like, Oh, last year I fished with this guy and he won the tournament here. And this year I'm a bowler and I'm sitting on the same wing dam as he is or the same uh, offshore spot. That's, that's just in bad taste. So, um, you know, to me, if you're a co, uh, I don't see any reason visiting those in like another tournament or visiting them in practice to learn and say, okay, this guy caught him here. Go over it and like drive over it, scan it, fish it learn from it and then go, okay, I understand why he was fishing that. I understand why the fish were there. Now go find your own damn spouts. <laughs> I don't know. What are you, I mean, um, I mean, some of these are community holes too on these big open places. And that's another thing, but some of these, you know, if it's truly something where this guy had it to himself, um, yeah, I definitely would think twice about going back to it in a tournament that they could be in. Um, but, you know, go visit it on your own time, learn from it and then expand upon it. Yeah, I think that's savory advice for the co-side, for a person that's on the pro side and they're worried about this. I, th I think the best advice is to just really treat your co with uh, as much respect as you possibly can. Be kind and um, you get along during the day and that person is going to be a lot less likely to do um, something questionably unethical to you later yeah. down the road. Maybe, for sure. The thing is, another thing is like, if you're like in it, at the open level, right? Like let's say you go and you jump in on Oneida as a co, because that's where you live. Well, that's a great way to learn about your lake. And then if you want to use that in your club tournament the next weekend, that's probably fine. Cause that guy, unless he's a local, you know, it's probably not a conflict, but yeah, right. if oh, they're coming back to Oneida next August and you think you're going to go, that's, that's in very poor taste. Or if it's, 
at a local level where they're repeating the same lights, that's where it definitely gets sticky. So, yeah. But I think at the open level, I just you you're more you gotta be more worried about catching your fish and uh, in the moment than worried about whether the spot's gonna get any good next year. Uh, yeah, for sure. Like the local chance, the level, new- at BFLs, if you think you got something juicy, then you need to have a conversation with your co. Right. Yeah, the chances of it working again are so slim. And yeah, it would just have to be the wrong co angler, and too many bad things would have to line up where I don't think it's usually too big of an issue. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, learn from it. That's the big thing. And then, and then make it your own. Um, yeah. Happy to teach you guys. That's why I like doing these streams. You know, I like there's a ton of good information, and there are so many good anglers that we can tap into, like, like Kent and so many other guys we've had on here. That, you know, I mean, like, this is therapeutic for me to sit here and talk fishing and uh, like that's basically why these streams started is when we were like much more serious about social distancing and uh uh you know uh quarantining at home this was definitely an outlet for me and now i've just found that this is just uh it's a good time and it's a great way for me to learn it's a great way for my viewers to learn and uh you know just catching up with guys that i see every now and then at the ramps for these tournaments and now i feel like i get to know them a little more uh so yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Rich, and your content is always good, and it's always got the right um, angle on it where you're trying to help people learn and teach people, and I really do appreciate that about all the content that you put out there, and I'm trying to do that more with my stuff. It's a bit of a shift of, like, hey, look at me with a fish to, hey, this is how I caught the fish, and um, so the, working on that uh shift and i guess that's probably why you see my my social game struggling a little bit hopefully we'll uh pick it up here in the next uh coming so you're month. saying you're not clamoring for more 20 dollar walmart barbie pole challenges for me <laughs> no, and like uh help people suck less you think no we're still in on that one and I, I love those barbie poles <laughs> throw a uh, zara spook on that all day right nice uh, well, cool. I think we went plenty long tonight. We went a little over two hours. Uh, make sure you guys check out the replay. Um, there's a link down in the description to Omnia Fishing, which uh, both Kent and I work w- with, and you can check out our ambassador pages. Uh, see what we're. Do you do? Do you reports on Omnia? I do. I just put a fresh report out on Coronas on largemouth. Uh, okay. There's a pretty good flipping bite going out on on Coronas for largemouth. Um, it's a little bit different. I don't normally like flipping pondweed, but the, when it's the kind of the only weed available they'll get up in it so well hurry up and act on that because it's going to die in about a week so yeah uh, but yeah so both both kent and i uh uh with omnia we both fill out fishing reports pretty much at least i do every time i go fishing so i don't always say what lake i'm going to in my videos but i will fill out a fishing report on omnia so if you want to go through the second step of effort and wonder where in the hell is Hellabass fishing uh uh, go check out the Omni report and you can see what lake I was on and see the actual lures and some of that stuff. So we just got a new sub, Kent. All right. Um, so yeah, there's that. And then I got a code Richlinger 15. It'll save you 15% off. I'm sure Kent's got a better code than that, but. Um, <laughs> nope, nope, you got it. Uh, but Owen says best color for side scan, personal preference, hundred percent, whatever works for you. I don't know. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that. I, I usually use amber personally, but yeah. I, I like the bright green because it looks cool, but I don't ever see anything <laughs> anywhere. On the thing, so. um, but all right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, make sure if you came late, you go back and watch the replay. There was a ton of good finesse nuggets from Kent. 
this is a long one. I will put a timeline and show. So if you're looking for a specific thing about smallmouth or drop shots or whatever, I'll have a timeline built in there so you can easily find it. So um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, until next time, we're here to help you catch more bass and suck less. Right on, man. It's fun. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. As always, thanks to all of you that hung in till the end of this podcast. This has been another episode of Hellabass Bass Fishing Podcast Experience. Please consider sharing this with any of your bass and buddies and friends. This is the best way for podcasts to grow is through word of mouth. Also, don't forget to search Hellabass on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or just about anywhere else so that we can connect in more ways. As always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less.